Hey everybody, on this week's episode, we are going to be discussing The Matrix from 1999. We do recommend you watch the movie, otherwise this is probably going to be an uninteresting podcast to listen to. So Mike, what is The Matrix about? John, do you think doing drugs is cool? Hip? Happening? Well, you're wrong. And I've got a dare motivational film just for you. Join me in diving into the story of Mr. Anderson, a kind-hearted, gainfully employed, hard-working man who was on the fast track to having it all. That is, until he thought drugs were cool. When on one fateful night, he said yes to some hard-partying dope fiends, where we see in a truly harrowing story, all it takes is one hit of mescaline. He was taking strange pills from conspiracy theorists and spiraling into insanity and delusion, fleeing from hard-working men of the law, and ultimately perpetuating the single greatest act of domestic terrorist our country has ever seen. So, John, next time someone offers you the reefer, the sticky icky, the devil's lettuce, just remember you're one hit away from mass violence and losing everything you hold dear. So instead of saying yes, I dare you to say no to drugs instead. Hard partying dope hits? That's a... That's a that's a phrase that's been put together before. <laughs> I mean, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that's not a reading of this movie. Okay. Uh, welcome to this film could be your life. I really, I appreciated that. I, 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 I love every bit of that. Does he actually do mescaline? I know mescaline gets gets referenced. Oh I don't yeah, think yeah. It actually comes up in the movie though. No, he just gets off. Everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined, as always, by Mike Overstreet. Hello. Who you've already met. And this morning, we are going to be talking about The Matrix, the 1999 sci-fi action movie written and directed by the Wachowskis. Woo! It stars Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Lawrence Fishburne, and Hugo Weaving, among others. Uh, the quote, this is the Wikipedia plot description. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality, the Matrix, which intelligent machines have created to distract humans while using their bodies as an energy source. When computer programmer Thomas Anderson, under the hacker alias Neo, uncovers the truth, he is drawn into a rebellion against the machines, along with other people who have been freed from the Matrix. The cinematographer was Bill Pope. It was edited by Zach Steinberg, and the music is by Don Davis. Mike, I have a quote I want to read you. Sure. Uh, a frankly, slightly oddly sourced quote. This is mm. from Darren Aronofsky, of all people. I like him. We're, you do like him? I was gonna. I was gonna say you're kind of a hater. We're no, both no. Kind the of Wrestler haters, is like one okay. of my favorite movies ever made. I for, honestly, I forgot about the Wrestler. This guy's yeah. amazing. Okay, Darren yeah. Aronofsky. I walked out of the Matrix, and I was thinking. What kind of science fiction movie can people make now? The Wachowskis basically took all the great sci-fi ideas of the 20th century and rolled them into a delicious pop culture sandwich that everyone on the planet devoured. Uh, FNA, which Cotton, I think is a great quote. FNA. <laughs> I think it's a great quote because there's two key things to talking about this movie. One, 
all of this amazing pop culture philosophy like it is like this like he calls this pop culture sandwich this movie yeah. has so many things being put into it ha- is half of why we talk about it the other half is this is one of the most su- amazing Cinderella story success stories sure. of all of yeah. them right? yeah yeah um so yeah we start by talking about our history with the movie mike what is your history with this? Were you part of that wave? Because we were alive when this came out. And yeah. you have a history of watching movies too young. Yeah. So no. were you part of this wave of Matrix just taking over everything in 1999? Absolutely not. Um, the thing that you need to understand about my dad showing me movies w- when I'm way too young is that they're the movies that he like grew up loving or was in college and loved. So it's all like 70s and 80s and you know stuff like that for the most part. Or at least the franchises that began in those eras. So like the modern go to the theater and see it. Um, Cause the other part of it was I only saw those movies when my mom was out of the house and my dad threw them on, <laughs> you know, the VHS or whatever. So really, you're really throwing them under the bus on this episode. Yeah. Huh? That's just, Oh no, we laugh about it all the time, uh, man. Anyway. Yeah. So this, we, there was a hard line for a lot of this kind of uh, going to the theater and seeing movies like this. I think that was exacerbated by the cultural, um, Honestly, probably just like white conservative Christian negative response to this movie. It was hailed as like a abhorrently violent film, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. But anyway, I digress. Um, It is so no. So when I was nine, when this came out, my parents absolutely did not let me go see it, Um, which meant that it built hype and like expectation for years. I mean, I probably saw it when I was 13, 14, 15. And even Mm -hmm. with that like build up, it freaking delivered. It is one of the top yeah. five. I did not know you could freaking do that. This blows my freaking mind movies ever made yeah. like that I've seen where I just was like jaw on the floor. Um, you kind of hinted at it. It is a movie that is equally exciting to uh, talk about in a dorm room as you partake in substances and like get existential and armchair philosophy. It is equally that as it is to like just wildly cool action sequences. It is a popcorn movie, yeah. and it's something I could geek out about on a very ridiculously, I'm 20 years old, and I've smoked too much weed, and I talk about the meaning of life <laughs> movies <laughs> ever. It's like a perfect balance, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a truly incredible... Sorry, were you... I don't want to... No, I'm done. I'm done. You? I'm done. I mean, it's a truly incredible the way that it intersected pop culture in all these different ways. When you get down to the movie though, and I'm, I'm skipping ahead a tiny bit, but when you get down to it, the movie is just star Wars in terms of popular appeal. Like, yeah, I think that's really what we're talking about is this movie. You and I are about to BS for like two or three hours about this movie, but I, my mom can also watch it and have a great time. Right. And, yeah. I, and it's like, that's just a fun movie. And she will never talk about a movie longer than five minutes, but it works for I, for any person, I think. And it's it, in a weird way, this is one of those examples where this it's on the one hand, it's surprising on the surface that this became such a cut, you know, a mass culture juggernaut. On the other hand, it makes total sense. It's like, how could this not have become the biggest movie, you know, released uh, yeah, that year? It sure. wasn't actually the biggest movie that really, but cultural influence, the biggest movie released that year. It's just, it makes so much sense. Um, my history of the movie, it's ironic you say that, that white evangelical Christian culture did not like this because I was even going to make the explicit point that this got through that filter because despite being R-rated, it, was, it surprised me realizing this was R-rated because there's, there's 
almost there's really no sex at all True. there's barely yeah. any cursing they never say the f-bomb which was very surprising yeah i i almost i almost wanted to say why does this have an r rating except for you know mass violence the the mass violence yeah, yeah. that, that <laughs> part but which i think is just a funny americanism of like how our values are aligned but it is i mean truthfully in my family it was a relatively i think i was allowed to watch this at like sure. 12 or something because it was yeah, like yeah. yeah who cares it's it's you know it's fine um but i do remember i mean because i was still like seven when it came out so i did not watch it when it came out but i remember even at that age it was it was a big enough deal that that there was a kind of mystique associated with it sure. right like yeah. i I remember kind of seeing things and be like, man, that looks like so cool and so like scary and ominous and intense. And my brother talks about my older brother is 11 years older than me. He was like really into it and like talking about it. I was like, man, this seems like th this is probably the coolest thing ever. And yeah, when I saw it when I was 11 or 12, it, 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 it was, it was a mind blowing experience. It just, yeah. I was like, Oh my God, I when think it, this is in, well, sorry, real quick. This is in yeah. contention for one of my most watched movies age past the age of like like 10 yeah because before 10 years old is like its whole different league because i could re-watch movies when i was six or seven literally non-stop over a day so that's just that's just grading on different you know a different scale but past an age of past the age of 10 i think this could be one of the movies i rewatched most sure i think i saw it constantly yeah uh sorry what were you saying no i mean i think that's absolutely true um it's one of those movies that is you know, there's like four or five movies that I remember uh, Mystique was the word you used, kind of that where it built up this hype and I eventually saw it and it was, you know, it, it was such a cultural conversation that I couldn't immediately dive into that it kind of built up uh, a whole lot of excitement. Yeah. This is one, you know, it's weird. I often think of like Garden State that way, which is a strange sure. movie, but I just had like a lot of people at the height of that kind of like indie quirky movie who are just like, oh, you got to see it. You know, I feel like Napoleon Dynamite. There are just like these random out of nowhere movies that uh, depending on how old you were, you got to actually see it in theaters or you just had to like wait and wait and wait. And then when you finally yeah. got to see it, it was like a kind of like what you're describing. It was like a fire hose where I just like literally felt like I was going to drink out of this this matrix hose for the rest of my days. Like I would just watch it yeah. over and over and over and over again because I had been waiting for so long um, and it lived up to the hype. So I think that's important, yeah. too. Absolutely. I think the only time I've experienced that, um, at least recently in life, would be like Parasite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because very word of mouth, very like also limited release. So, you know, you kind of had to wait or you had to, you know, drive somewhere or something. So that was, I think, a really cool moment for that. Um, really quick, I just want to ask, where, where are you on, on the Wachowskis? Uh, and maybe Ooh. I want to introduce that I am... Uh, well, you know, every like every movie buff, I think, has to have like the the one underdog that they're always going to go to bat for. The Wachowskis are by are in my. I'm always in their corner. Whatever they do, I mean, having said that, I did not watch Jupiter Ascending, so I guess I'm not always in their corner. Yeah, but, yeah, 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 that was bad. But <laughs> I'm I was there. I mean, you know, V for, v for Vendetta, I think, yeah. is amazing. Speed Racer is one of the most undervalued movies ever, and is secretly an amazing movie. Cloud Atlas is an incredible movie, in my opinion. I even kind of go to bat for the Matrix sequels. We'll talk about that later. Um, but I'm just always there for them. And I think if the, you know, if if ambition is a measurable quantity, then they have the most of it. 
Sure. Like I, I that's what I really appreciate is that they they don't always stick the landing, as we will talk about. But when they but they are always reaching well beyond their capacity, and I love that. I love that so much that I will let them I will let them get away with quite a lot of maybe subpar work sure. because I'm just so excited for someone to be like I want to make like Cloud Atlas. I want to make a movie that is yeah just just so intensely over the top in terms of how it's what it's trying to achieve that even if it falls flat it's still like well that was kind of maybe one of the greatest things i've ever seen i don't know yeah um but yeah i don't, I don't know we're wachowski's yay nay kind of um, just whatever yeah i actually knew you're gonna ask this because we have disagreed on actually it's literally just speed racer so this is what I realized. I know John was going to ask me this because he goes to bat for them, and I always like to push his buttons by being like, they suck. Um, right. What I yeah, realized... That, I think, you know what? That is the entirety of the conversations we've yeah. had before. What, uh, what I realized uh, doing research for this is that, one, I don't believe that, and two, I'm not equipped to even make that call because I have actually sure. seen very few of their movies. I, I really thought I'd seen more of their like work. Um, I've seen The Matrix... Really, obviously, love that. We're going to talk about it. Do not particularly like the sequels, though the second one has some great visuals, so I'll give it that. Yeah. I think the third one is trash, but that's a whole other conversation. I like the Animatrix. I thought that was a neat little uh, ambitious little project, yeah. And then I like V for Vendetta, and beyond that, uh, the only other film I've seen by them is Speed Racer, which I have never understood the love for. So, which we don't need to legislate here. You probably want to, but we don't need to. So we don't need to. What I will agree with you on is that there is never a movie that I have seen by them where they have not called their shot. And there is something to be said about that. You know, the greats, Paul Thomas Anderson's of the world, stuff like that, always do that. They are not making a movie with an audience in mind. They are making something in a story that they want to tell and depict. And with that comes wild originality. With that also comes bombs often because you make something yeah. that no one actually wanted um yeah but at least it's original it is funny how it's it, there it's funny how it goes both ways because it's yeah. like it can be very unique in a way like call it atlas where it's hard to get people in the theater but then the people who are there are really there yeah um and then you get jupiter ascending where it's like no one's there and also it was hard to get people in the theater so it's well, like it, yeah it, it can go bad it's when it kind, goes bad it goes bad it's kind of wild that the movie that they allowed the producers to dabble in the most is probably the matrix, which is crazy. Cause what you see, what you see for the rest of their movies is they are just like, we're going to make the movie we want to make. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of amazing. I mean, I I don't think there's there are not many directors as fearless as they are, which is super cool. Even if I don't always connect to their work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally there. Uh, Let's just start. Let's get in the movie. I actually did have two last things just to illustrate how exactly how much I've seen this movie. I'm sorry. I should have said these earlier, but whatever. I'll just mention it now. One is for as a sign of how much I watched this movie. I remember where the commercial breaks are from. <laughs> I want to say like probably TNT. Like I was rewatching it last night and I kept being like, I kept having these moments of like my oh. body almost just like started noticing like. Oh wait, there's a commercial break going up, and I'm like, wait a second, I'm watching this on on HBO. There's no commercial break. That's funny. And I was, I, I had to figure out that I was like, oh, I just know where those come up. Um, and then I was gonna, actually, this last point I can say later, so no worries. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Oh yeah, funny. let's get into it. So we, uh, 
divide this podcast into four sections. We're going to talk about why this movie works, what maybe holds this movie back, some stray thoughts, and then later on we're going to have some essays. But we start out by talking about why this movie works. And this is, frankly, one of the longest sections I've ever written for one of these movies, which is mm. a bad sign because our last episode broke a record for how long it yeah, was. Yeah, I, I actually... So I, I don't know. Uh, I took Dune as a sign for me to shorten my work, so it's interesting. We'll see how this goes. Um, we'll see. We'll see I have what a happens. lot to say, um, though, so let's riff. Let's do it. Let's just go for it. Uh, I wrote, what works? My next point. Is this a perfect movie? Question mark. Yes. Um, the answer is kind of yes. So, so, and and I I know it's a little bit of a joke point, but I wanted to get into it a little bit because what I wrote is the number of things this movie gets right is unreal. Yeah. And there's a reason why we com- we constantly compare this movie to Star Wars. Like you'll hear that a lot that this is a the Star Wars for its generation. Like it comes up constantly in dialogue for this movie. Um. But that's like really a perfect a perfect comparison because Star Wars, you know, I, I was saying it earlier, but Star Wars creates this new world, but then also gives you the story that really, really, really grabs you and makes yes. you invested. And yeah. I, I think like the, the thing that I specifically always get back to is this in the first Star Wars land their last act so well. Mm. And you're so on the on the edge of your seat for the entire last 30 minutes. And you just forget to breathe, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. And that is so important for how this movie succeeds. And again, I, I this I'm reiterating myself, but anyone can watch this movie and be having fun by the end of it. Yes. And, you know, we're going to talk about all this heady uh, philosophy. We're going to talk about amazing fight sequences we're going to talk about all the stuff but the pacing and the story and the investment on an audience level works so that's why everything else works because if it didn't land that we wouldn't care about the amazing fight sequences or the the incredible casting or the cool philosophy the dormant philosophy whatever none of that would mean anything except that it's well paced and it's an audience pleaser it's a popcorn movie at heart and that just and is and because of that it's just perfect it just it 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 just is fun for anyone to watch and get into yeah um, so mike it's a bro- it's a broad starting place but but what what do you, what do you have what do you have yeah i think i wrote two things related to that which is you know the first note i wrote and i i all caps most important note for me is that this movie is the most wildly original movie or one of the most wildly original movies ever made it is truly yeah. innovative and it is truly the perfect blend of ambition and execution, right? It yeah. it takes it calls shots. It goes nuts on some of the philo- philosophical conversations. It obviously takes some very daring, daring choices with action sequences and uh, character depictions and yada yada yada. But at the end of the day, it never underdelivers, right? It yeah. never goes so far into that ambition and that originality that it can't achieve. The you know the the emotion it wants you to feel the the excitement it wants you to feel it never gets burdened down by exposition. It is just it's just perfect. I mean it's ambitious and its execution meets it. I would say more than almost any movie I've seen at the exact same level. It is yeah so good at that. And then obviously I also wrote we need to stop saying this, but pacing pacing pacing. Um, yeah. This movie never feels like it's slowing down. Even when it does slow down, this is something I realized this time around that I never put words to. But like the slowest part of this movie is the exposition after Neo is freed from the Matrix. And even Mm. that feels thrilling. 
because of the innovation behind the vehicles for the exposition. So the white room yeah. with the TV set, the training sequences and the dojo, like each of these oh. is quite frankly, those are only there for exposition and to flesh out the world with talking. And yet, because Lawrence, one, it's so innovative and two, Lawrence Fishburne, they land yeah. perfectly and they never feel slow. And that's crazy yeah. to me. Like they are giving you so much information about how the world works in those scenes. And I'm like, oh, this is an action sequence. This feels so exciting. Um, and that's wild. Like, and then the other note I put with pacing was even when it does slow down, like actually feel slow, which is one scene, is it's the betrayal scene and it serves a purpose and it hits so emotionally. And that's a great scene. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say that that scene is gonna come up. That literally I, it really, really works. Yeah. Literally the only scene where the movie grinds to a halt and nothing like yeah. nothing is moving in the frame is but and yet everything's moving emotionally and mentally right so anyway well and, and i agree with I, you just to continue <laughs> just Ditto. to continue on that thing about just to continue on that about pacing too you know this is i i think um i i realize so much more this time all of the little things this movie does to keep its pace up one of the smartest things i realize is it starts it opens with an amazing action sequence. Oh, yeah. And then after that, we don't get another, like, straight action sequence until about an hour into the movie. But the whole time, you don't care because, A, you had that, that moment at the beginning. Like, imagine if it didn't open with a fight scene. Yeah. You would be kind of, you'd be a little bit like, why am I here until the dojo fight? But because of that, you're, it sort of tides you over, so we're fine. And then there's really, like you said, the exposition itself is actually really exciting. There's the technology, but there's also the fact that the ideas are really, really crazy cool to think about. Like yeah. to anyone. Like, like yeah. you know, it, it's, it's brain in a vat and it's actually kind of philosophy 101, but it's being presented in a way that's like, you know, people would never have thought of that before, I think. Or, or like the average person isn't going to sit around and be like, what if I am just a brain in a vat? How yeah. would I know? Yeah. And now suddenly you're on this whole thing and you're like, oh my God, what what's happening? And you're down to your entire universe. It's great. Well, um, in, in a very real yeah. way, real quick, with the kind of related to pacing and what you just said, is another thing, balancing point, that this film gets perfectly right. And I think this is actually the most dangerous one where it could have gone off the rails in a lot of ways. But it's really mm -hmm. the fact that the film's like, what the hell is going on? Like its sensibilities of that sensation are kind of perfectly balanced in terms of disguising yeah. and then revealing its rules. Um, yeah. I actually think the intro scene is perfect example, right? There's this opening yeah. phone call, rabbit hole, green number codes, immediately cops trying to arrest Trinity. Agents arrive, Trinity fights. There's literally cops get murdered and you're like, is this character good or bad? She takes a phone call from Morpheus. There's the wild garbage truck scene and interspersed throughout all of this action are like small and then large breaking of physics through the stunts. And then it goes right yeah. to, oh, Mr. Anderson's boring life. And immediately you're just like, oh, this table is so set. I'm engrossed. And yeah, I'm in. I, again, like you said, it tied you over. And then they kind of throw out these little nuggets of like Neo's mouth getting closed, the mirror turning to liquid. And across each of those great one, they look cool sequences, but also just as nuggets, what's really neat about it is it's really masterful because what it's doing is in the best way possible, it's slowly and steadily leading you into an upheaval of a reality and a revelation mm. of this movie works on very different rules than your normal life, which kind of matches the upheaval of that philosophical content you were talking about. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Absolutely. 
No, yeah. no, it, okay. it, I, yeah. I think you're totally right. I think it's 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 leading you slowly into into its universe. It's yeah. doling out information very strategically. I think that it's also a huge part of why the the middle part of the movie does work. So so everything from once Neo wakes up and the Nebuchadnezzar on, like b- basically the second act. The second act works because you also are really excited about this what they're telling you. Yes. Right? yes. Like you, you also are like, you know, what does it mean? Like I, I think the one I always remember is when they have their first fight in the dojo and Neo wakes up. Or no, sorry. After he fails the jump and he wakes up and he's got blood on his lip, and he asks like, "Why am I hurt?" And, and Morpheus explains, and then Neo says, "Can you die in the Matrix?" And Morpheus says, "You're, you know, you can't. The body can't survive without the mind." And that's a question you've been asking yourself the whole time. You're like, yeah, "Wait a second, if this yeah, is a simulation, yeah. can they? Do they die if they die in there?" And then you finally get there. Okay, okay. And it's like all these little bits of information you're putting together as the movie goes along to get an image of what's going on, but they pace it so that you by the beginning of the third act which i think is about when they decide to go rescue morpheus by the beginning of the third act you totally understand the rules of the world right yeah you you completely you know the stakes really well and again i'm going to call back to star wars which is like as you start going into the last part of the movie you understand everything you need to know about the world to be on the edge of your seat right they've given you all the information you need so now you're totally invested yes um yeah, it's just, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, and uh, I, real quick, to yeah. build off of that, just because we're going back and forth here, I think a, a great example of that world building that leads to an inevitable payoff that you really don't need explained to you is, like, the mythology of the agents, right? So you have all yeah. this time spent talking about these agents and how they're unstoppable and they'll kill everybody, and then you get to the scene in which, you know, Hugo Weaving's character confronts Morpheus for the first time. And this is a guy who has just been like beating the crap out of Neo. And you watch as the agent effortlessly and brutally beats Morpheus half to death. Right. And suddenly there is without them having to tell you, there's like a boss fight sense of this character. You're like, Oh, you told me he was bad. And then you showed me he was bad, which has a epic payoff where you get to the end and it bookends so nicely when Neo and the agent fight. I mean, it's straight genius in a lot of ways because when Neo gets shot, obviously you're like, well, up there it goes. This is what happens when you confront agents. But then when he effortlessly starts blocking his stuff and stopping the bullets, there is just a level of natural excitement and awe and wonder and understanding of what they are telling you about who Neo is that comes just Mm. from pretty effortless world building and build, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that scene, those two scenes working together with the exposition about the agents comes to mind as like a perfect example of what you're talking about. I get this world, you show me this world, and then you make me feel the excitement of the revealing of the nature of this world, right? It's awesome. I promise, I promise I'm not going to keep referencing the original Star Wars, but just one last thing, (laughs) because I I think that like it is it's so intriguing to me how, how similar they are. Once again, that scene to me is doing exactly the same thing that happens. Um, when Luke is on the trench run. Yeah. When dark Maul the fights. 
We're we're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. I'm pouring out my heart. I'm pouring out my heart. I'm living my life. I'm trying to be a good human being. We're trying to do a podcast here. We're 30 minutes in and we haven't even gotten to our first point. And you're you're giving me this. You're giving me attitude. When Luke's in the trench run and he hears the force music and 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 the voice of Obi Wan says, "Use the force," right? Yeah. And in that instant, all of the different parts of the movie have intersected in a way that you didn't necessarily think they were going to. Yeah, right? like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so in this movie, that's what's happening is you've been invested in the action, you've been invested in Neo's story, but suddenly this whole other part of the movie gets connected. The, the philosophy side of it, all of these things land together and you're like, wow, I'm completely in. Like, I, I think anyone watching the movie at that point is just like, wow, this is... This is the best thing I've ever seen. That's a moment where you watch a movie and you think, like, is this the best movie I've ever seen? Yeah. The whole last 10 yeah. minutes, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I breathe a little bit. I'm like, yeah, it is, absolutely. Um, you know, we have a couple big things to get to. I, I want to talk about the action. I want to start yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is maybe <laughs> one of the best action movies, like, ever, right? Yeah, that, How, maybe. What? Uh I think, like, obviously everyone talks about, you know, seeing in the theater when you see the the, the uh, Trinity fight at the beginning. Yeah, the, man. It does the bolo time for the first time. I think, though, ever, I think the first moment that I'm really like, oh, my God, is the dojo fight. Yeah. Between uh, Morpheus yeah. and Neo. Which is maybe just one of the best action scenes just ever on yeah. its own. Yep. Um the fact that they, I mean, I mean, there's there's a lot to say because it's just like, well, first of all, this movie set a new standard of like actors performing and like stunts and fights and everything. And like that scene works because you so buy that that is Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves because it is Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves. They're fighting each other. It's shot perfectly. It's not cutting away too much. You're seeing the hits. I like too. I mean, I mean, the other thing is just the way that this movie the premise is so smart because wire foo like existed. Yeah. But now there's almost a reason for it. And part of me wants to say that's dumb. Like you shouldn't need a reason to have people flying around a, a, you know, a movie set kicking each other. Like that's just cool. But I think that that gets again to that, like wide popularity side of things. Right. Yeah. Like part yeah. of how this movie landed for so many people is it's like, well, for the, for that sizable part of the population that does like need a reason, quote unquote, why they're flying around doing these crazy things, we're going to give it to you. They're in a simulation. If they, if they, I don't know, inhabit themselves, if they're present enough, spiritual something, something enough, then they can fly and they can do all these crazy things. And it's like, cool, I'm in. Um, and it just looks incredible. And you're just there the whole time. But it's so exciting and it's so fun to watch. Uh, I don't know. Mike, what do you, got? What, what do you have on the action? Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting chicken or the egg conversation when you think about the fact that Crouching Tiger comes out a year after this movie, and I you're kind of like, about that. Yeah. where would both of these have been as successful if they had flipped? Right? Would Crouching Tiger still be as successful if we had not been kind of introduced in a more palatable way for American culture and viewing experience to like the wire foo kind of style, right? Or yeah would that have made the matrix feel cheaper if we had seen crouching tiger and that had been a phenomenon like maybe that is still just successful i don't have an answer to that it's an interesting conversation what is so mm. awesome about the matrix 
is very I, I mean you said this might be one of the best action movies i'm gonna return to that that is absurd this is one of the best action <laughs> movies ever made and it's because sure. you just don't see innovation on the scale it takes you know choreography that is very popular at this point already in other you know uh cinematic cultures like this mm. crouching tiger style effects and then it blends it almost effortlessly into one, like you said, interesting philosophy, but more importantly for our conversation right now, the modern shootout style action that Americans are accustomed to. And then it sprinkles on top of that, a use of technology to create slow motion that was just unprecedented at the time. So you're taking yeah. this so far largely unknown in American culture style of choreography. You're taking a style of action violence with guns and high tech and dystopian whatever that we love and then you're combining it with a completely oh my god i've never seen someone do this on a screen like depiction of combat and what's the yeah. outcome it's like the coolest thing ever it, it's truly there there is no action film since the matrix that has not had it touch on it in some way absolutely and that's all i have to say about it this is amazing this is truly unprecedented what they do with this movie I would even say most of the... You had a comment in a previous episode, which I disagreed with at the time, and I disagree with now. Oh, I would good. say that a lot of the CGI has also aged relatively well. I think specifically the bullet time neo-dodging yeah, the sure. bullets, which, by the way, isn't CGI, I learned. is is Like, everything around him is, but Keanu Reeves yeah. in that shot, that is really him in his coat falling. Like, you can see yeah, the shot yeah, where yeah, they... Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we'll talk about some of the CGI that doesn't work later, but that for scene, the most but part, yes, seems like that still work and it's, and it's incredible and it's worth noting. And this is true of a lot of nineties action movies that have aged. Well, um, a lot of the shots aren't CGI things that would be CGI now aren't. Yep. So like there's shots of like the guys dangling out of the helicopter. There's some close-ups that are obviously fake, but there's there's wide shots of that where it's like, yeah, it's just two guys hanging out of a helicopter. Like, yeah, they just went and did that. And well, John, it, it, you, you brought this up with, oh gosh, Temple of Doom, how Spielberg is a yeah. master of sprinkling kind of practical effects with CGI so you can never really tell which is which. This is like mm -hmm. that done to an absurd degree. Like, you know, yeah. with all the technology of a movie made 20 years later or whatever, um, that's what this looks like. And it's thrilling. It's fantastic. Yeah. You're you're completely in the whole time. It looks and and yeah, the the fights. Oh my gosh, it's just it's so good. Yeah, and I also feel like you know I have to at least shout out as a millennial the assault of free Morpheus just as a scene. I don't know if yeah. there like I, let me ask you this is a question: Was there ever a greater cultural moment for like a '90s kid than when Neo comes through the metal detector and he opens his trench coat and it's loaded with guns and it's just like oh it's about to go off. Because I feel down. like and then that, that music was, starts up and yeah. it's like, oh man. Yeah, that yeah. was like in and of itself a defining cultural moment for kids my age. And then, yeah. you know, there's the slow motion. He's doing cartwheels for no reason. The pillars are exploding. It's just like one of the most revolutionary and memorable action sequences of the last 30 years. And I would just say a defining one of my childhood when it comes to action movies. It's sure. probably how people feel felt about like the Terminator when it came out, if they were 10 years older than me. That's what this movie is to me that scene in i totally particular. agree so want to that's, shout it out that's that scene can serve as a microcosm of like a perfect action scene really i don't want to skip ahead here the only issue is i i sometimes struggle not struggle watching it now there's there's a voice in the back of my head 
about like like certain things with violence and, and oh, yeah. people yep. after this movie and stuff. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. But all of that being said, yes, you're right. That scene in particular, um, oh my God, that's, it's just so good. And you're right. It, it's just iconic in and of itself. I actually always like the Agent Fit, or excuse me, the Agent Smith fight the most personally. Oh, me too. The first me one too. in the subway. Yeah. Uh, I just thought Baller. that was amazing. It's great. Oh my yeah. gosh. The way that, and even again, like the moment when he chooses, he's supposed to run, but he decides to just turn around and she's like, what's he doing? And Morpheus says, he's beginning to believe. That's my Lord's Fishboard. It was, it was, it's a terrible line if he's not saying it. I just realized this for the first time. (laughs) Mike's like, I'm learning things. I hate this movie now. Okay. Let's talk about the cast. Yeah. Uh, Because we've been dancing around them and the cast in this movie is amazing. I want to start from the top. Let's talk about our boy. Let's talk about Keanu Reeves Keanu. again. Because we talked about him back in John Wick. Um, Still awesome. Obviously, all-time all time action guy. I mean, if you just add up Speed, The Matrix, it's, it's and point John break. Wick. And Point Break. It's, sorry, and Point Break. Oh, it's my like, God. There's just no one close, right, in terms it's of insane. action. Is there anyone even in the same... Same ballpark, same stratosphere. I just, I don't think so. I think no, it's like, no, he's, he's the definition of, if you said out loud, offhanded at a party, Keanu Reeves is the sing, single-handedly, without a doubt, the single most successful and greatest action star of all time. People would be yeah. like, that's ridiculous. And then, like you said, just start naming movies and people are like, oh, just kidding. There's actually no yeah. real question about this. It just is what it is. I would even say I don't know if people these days would even say that's ridiculous. I think before John Wick, yeah, like there was a question. There was like a mm, he had moments. He was kind of a '90s guy, you know. Do we really care? I think having John Wick that late in his career, and that yeah. being such an iconic action movie, is like probably the most iconic action movie of this decade or of this uh, millennium so far. Is like yeah, you know that that really helped out. I, I think that's what pushed him over the edge. Um, I know I've referenced this before. I'm sure I referenced this on the John Wick podcast. I once heard that there's two kinds of great actors. There's great actors who are transformed and become someone different. And then there's great actors who completely sell you on the fact that they believe every word that they are saying. (laughs) And Keanu Reeves is is absolutely the latter. So, like, he's not out here and you're like, oh, my God, I just didn't even know that was Keanu. It's like, no, no, he's always Keanu Reeves. And... I think it's a mistake, though, that people like to give the hot take of like, okay, well, he's a bad actor because it's like I always know that's yeah, him. Yeah, it's lazy, and it's like, yeah, yeah, here you have you completely b- believe that he believes he's in that role, yeah, and he and also in this movie specifically, he's meant to be blank, and that's okay. Like, yeah. it's it's a it's a blank protagonist you can read onto, but he's relatively um, charming and and he's relatively charismatic. And you're you're in, and you, you know, he he gets you into that role, and that's really all he's supposed to do. Like, yeah. you know, you're you're in, and he does the stunt stuff perfectly. So what what more do you want? Yeah, um, yeah. There's a there's a part of me that wonders if one of the flaws with the sequels is that Keanu Reeves is from the the jump in those movies asked to be more than a audience stand-in, and that's yeah. like what he is in this movie, and he's perfect at it. Uh, it is like he is asked to do nothing that he can't do and to literally only play to his strengths. And so much of that is he is, he's supposed to be like the blank slate for me to enter this movie on and to be confused by and to be like discovering things along with him. And like you said, to have just enough charisma and personality and charm to like be likable. But beyond that, like 
if you start asking him to carry heroic weight other than the last like five minutes of this movie, I wonder if it's as effective. And I think that's a fair question to ask about the sequels. Um, well, notice even in the last five minutes of this movie, he's not carrying that weight as though like he's still an audience standing. Carrying yeah, that weight. We've yes. been on the journey with him. So we're okay with him having like that moment. It's not like this alien force. That's, you know, this 100%. alien messiah. Um, yeah. yeah. We'll talk about the other movies in a little bit. But yeah. <laughs> I think it's, 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 it's incredible. Um, I'm going to let you cook on this one for a little bit. Cause you've already referenced it a couple times. Let's talk about Lawrence Fishboard. Oh, huh? yes. Uh, yeah, I'm really. What, what do you got? How? Tell me. Tell me how Lawrence Fishburne uh, makes this movie better. Well, so I I wrote down that there are two truly generational roles and performances in one movie with The Matrix, mm. which is unbelievable. And I know you're gonna have a lot to say about the other one in a little bit. Yeah, but I, I would say both Lawrence Fishburne. Joey Pantalone, man. Yeah. Oh, that, my God, a- Cipher. What a lovable little worm. Zyper's anyway, actually amazing in this movie. But I agree. That, that let's let's get to him in a second. One second. Let's pump the brakes, John. We're talking about <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo <laughs> Weaving. Uh, but yeah, both those, both of those roles and performances are like up there with Hannibal Lecter, quite frankly, in terms of yeah. like a, just a generational, I can place them and who they are and how they made me feel as both hero and villain, like immediately upon just like hearing a line reading or seeing their, yeah. a picture of them from this movie. I would even say like like Darth Vader level. Like you, oh, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It yeah. is, you know, this iconic. I mean, we're not going to talk too much about the current Matrix movie. We're recording this December 29th, 2021. So, you know, the Matrix Resurrections in theaters. I haven't seen it. Mike hasn't seen it. We've heard mixed things. Uh, but I do know, I wa- looking at people's responses online to what looks like a recasting of Morpheus. I, I'm sure that's not what's happening because it's supposedly a very weird movie. But it looks like they recast Morpheus, right? And the comments people have made on like the trailers and stuff up to now signify exactly how iconic Lawrence Fishburne is in yes. this role. Because people just are not there for it. What like you... a number of people are like, just as soon as I saw someone who looks like Morpheus but isn't Lawrence Fishburne, I'm just out. I'm just yeah. like, what are you doing? That I, doesn't make sense. I cannot stress enough how much talking it's in this movie that you do not realize is just talking because he is so good at line reading. Like he delivers some of the most wild, just confusing, easy to get completely derailed pieces of script writing I have ever heard. And yet when Mm -hmm. he says it, it is almost like an action sequence. Like his line reading is exciting it is thrilling as he lays out when he there's impossible two scenes where he has to, <laughs> yeah. there are two scenes where he basically just has to monologue there's the yes. first there's the iconic 100%. two red chairs and then there's the when they're in the uh matrix and he's or they're in the simulation as he's explaining what the matrix is both of those is just Lawrence fishborn talking for five minutes right and those are both you're as invested as the action scenes for both of those scenes you were on the edge of your seat. Yes. Listen, you know, hanging on every single word he says. Hello, Neo. Well, you're you're just like I'm in. I want. Yep. I'm, I'm 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 excited. This is so. This is the best thing I've ever seen. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it incredible. Is, if it were anyone else in a different movie, I would call it lazy. How they do exposition in this movie, like you said, yeah. with monologues, just like not even hiding it. It's just a straight. Let me tell you what the Matrix is, um, in like a classroom setting. But it's so cool 
technologically in terms of the innovation, but also like you've just said, his just tone, his mannerisms, every part of his performance makes it come to life with such excitement that it doesn't feel you lazy. Take, it feels You take the thrilling. blue pill. The story ends. You wake up tomorrow and believe whatever you want to believe. You yeah. take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. The reason I remember that line for, word for word is because he delivered it. It's yep. because as a kid, you, you are hanging on every word. It's incredible. Oh, man. Which that, is a, so, so let's let's do that yeah. as a sen- seamless blend and I'll get out of the way and let you cook. So the other the other person in this movie that I can't believe didn't get nominated for an Oscar for supporting actor other than Lawrence Fishburne is Hugo Weaving, uh, the famous um, agent. I want to hear you talk. We're going to. Cook. We're gonna queue up. We're gonna queue up a little bit of his speech uh, and play that right now. I hate this place, this zoo, this prison, this reality, whatever you want to call it. I can't stand it any longer. It's the smell. If there is such a thing, I feel saturated by it I can taste your stink every time I do I fear that I've somehow been infected by it it's repulsive isn't it I must get out of here I must get free and in this mind is the key my key Once Zion is destroyed, there is no need for me to be here. Do you understand? I need the codes. I have to get inside Zion. And you have to tell me how. You're going to tell me, or you're going to die. Yeah, I mean, that is literally the first note I had under this performance in my notes, was his rant about hating human beings is pure gold. It is unbelievable. It is so good. Give him an Oscar. Well, and it's what you were saying about Lawrence Fishburne. We're like, if I read that dialogue on the page, I might have questions, right? I, I might sure. be like, I don't know about this necessarily. Like, he himself on his own sells that. Also, quietly, like a legend. If you think yeah. about this movie, if you think about Lord of the Rings, if you think this guy is so good and and is such a particular style of talking and. A, a, probably like some of the most screen presence I've ever seen from anyone. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's so, so good. I think he's as important to this movie's success as Keanu Reeves or Lawrence yeah. Fishmore for that matter. The way that he over enunciates things yes. specifically, like everyone knows like Mr. Anderson. I can hear that in my back. head forever. <laughs> Yeah, yes. it's so icon. It's I- iconic. We keep saying, but it- it's an iconic performance, and it and it's what you said earlier, right? Where where it's he is the heavy, and he sells you on being the heavy. Yes, it really means something that you are. Yeah, you you know they set him up to be so terrifying, and he is that terrifying. Um, he is. Yeah, I don't know if I have even anything else to say other than that. It's just it's an unreal performance. It's a like, perfect and timeless performance. Absolutely, and weirdly like. Part, one of the only things that makes the sequels borderline watchable, I would say. Oh, yeah. Because he has yeah. a much bigger role in two and three and is maybe the only thing that, like, I think comes off without a hitch in those movies. Like, as he has a bigger role, I'm more invested in his character and in the weird sure. arc he takes. Um, With you. With you. Yeah. 
sequels are secretly good? Question mark. Planting we'll the back, seed. A we'll little get back bit? to that. We'll get back to that. Planting the seed, Mike. Right. Okay. No. Uh, we'll maybe blow through these. Carry on, Moss. Great. Like just really, really, really good. Yeah, um, and I, I have no. I, I put next to this just real quick. I have no idea why she didn't have a bigger career or become like an action never, heroine. I, I didn't know either. Yeah, yeah. She feels yeah. like a Sigourney Weaver, like she could have been, and she just isn't. I don't know if it's typecasting or what. She's obviously like really good in like Memento and a couple other like thrillers, but I feel like her action career maybe she just didn't want that. I don't. I don't actually have an answer. But I gotta she's be honest. Super good. Her in this. role in Memento was so um, disconcerting, like evil. Yeah, that like I I struggled watching her and other things for yeah. a little while after yeah. I saw Memento. I was like, man, you're just a bad person. And they're like, yeah, yeah. No, that's the character. This is the this is the Memento yeah. podcast. Joey Pantoloni about- a Memento too. Big big my yeah. guy gets around. Anyways, let's talk about uh, Joe no, Pantoloni. <laughs> let's talk about Joe Pantoloni. No, no, but real quick on Karen Moss too. Um, I uh, a guy that so I there's a podcast Mike and I listen to Rewatchables. I was listening to the Rewatchables on the Matrix. Uh, Chris Ryan in the in that episode uh, compares her to the Terminator from T2 and with Keanu Reeves as Linda Hamilton. And it kind of works because what he says is like she has to be like icy and badass and intense so that at the end when she's vulnerable for a moment, you buy that the gravity of that happening. Yeah. Right. And I never thought of that, but it's really true. The whole movie, she's really, really, really reserved so that when you get to that moment at the very end, it's like, oh man, this is a big deal that she's yep. like suddenly being vulnerable and is, is, you know, having this moment. You really buy it. You buy that journey with her. And again, that's all I'm asking. Um, I do want to shout out Joey Pantaloni. Yeah, by the man. Way, Cause he perfect. is really good. He's, he is a perfect, I actually wrote perfect little worm in this movie. He's like, I wrote, this might be the platonic ideal of a slimy traitor. Yeah, right? man. Like you hate him by the moment, by the time that he finally gets shot by t- by a dozer or tank or whoever. Like you're really like, wow, this guy sucks. This is the most evil person I can imagine. But then there's also an element, and again, this is what this is the movie playing with interesting ideas. I think because I remember thinking too as a kid, like, but I also kind of accept, and maybe even wonder if I wouldn't be someone who would like, yeah, want to be living a cushy life in the matrix as opposed to a uh, objectively terrible life outside of it. So there's even like this question in there. There's like, it's not only that he's evil. It's like, but maybe I get it a little bit. Maybe there's an element where I'm like, yeah, like when he gives that speech of, um, I know that this stake doesn't exist. Right. You're, you're kind of like, Oh, you know, maybe, maybe I buy that. That's, that's as good a reason as any. I I, this, uh, I had so this yeah. in stray thoughts, but I I put down that Cipher is the most relatable villain motivation ever depicted in like a, a film in a lot of ways. Sure, where it's just like, dude, my man just wants a steak, you know, and and I'm not gonna lie, like that steak looks juicy. It looks good. That steak and looks I, juicy. I would consider betraying and dooming humanity for a bite of that no, steak. If I, I, was, I was gonna say it is a little. T- well, if I was eating like oatmeal that. every day, come on. Uh, yeah, but, but but Mike, he's not betraying the crew. He's betraying all of humanity. Yeah, like yeah. like they are getting the codes to Zion, the only free humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, yeah, yeah. at yeah, all stake. But you're but you're still on board. Just that's just to, just. To I'm clarify. just saying it's kind of what you. I mean, joking aside, <laughs> I do think it's a very relatable villain, in which you can it make is. this you're super right. unrelatable. This guy could just be like a double agent who's very two dimensional. But there is, like, yeah. this part of it where you're like, yeah, I mean, how enticing is it where 
man, your life sucks. Like, you know the truth, and it makes everything hell. And there's this part yeah. of you that you just want to... For- I mean, how many of us just want to forget the banality or the suffering of our daily lives? And that's why we do all sorts of horrible stuff. So there's at least... A, yeah. There's a very interesting, relatable theme behind the character. Obviously, yeah. betraying humanity for his sake is kind of... You know, it's ridiculous. It's jacked up. But I get it. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, John. And he sells it. That's uh, the most important part. He, he sells, sells it. it. Absolutely. Wormy little Last dude. actor I want to talk about. I mean, everyone's everyone else is good in this movie. I just want to say, I don't know. I didn't look up who he is. And I guess I could at this point, but I just won't. Uh, whoever Tank is, that guy's pretty charismatic. I yeah, like man. that guy a lot. His name and is Marcus also, Chong, by the way. There we go. Awesome. Go go, go for it, Marcus. Also secretly a part of why the sequels don't work. Because he's gone. I, I think it was a contract dispute. I think he wanted more money than like made sense. And so they, yeah. they axed him. They like quietly replace him with he dies like off screen and they replace him with another character um secretly part of why those don't work though i think tank really lands in this movie um do you want to talk about any other actors or just get to some no. other why this we movie just shout out that it's a very strong ensemble it, everyone yeah. works well together there's great chemistry everyone does their job it yeah. works it just works I, absolutely um let's blow through some because i just have like essentially stray thoughts and like why yeah. this works I already talked about the last 30 minutes, but I just want to mention again, it's just a masterclass of popcorn action climax. The thing I didn't mention earlier, because you have all this stuff going on, you have the build-up to the Agent Smith fight, the fight, the chase, the death, the tender moment, the resurrection. All of that is with the mounting tension of the Sentinels breaking into the Nebuchadnezzar yeah, in the background. Yeah, great little That gimmick. is just a perfectly structured scene. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that is driving you, that is driving the intensity up every single second. Again, Star Wars does this too because the Death Star is going to fire on the planet. So it's just really, really, really smart. Well, I have we another always, one I want to mention. We, all, and well, we always talk you. about, yeah, what's up? real quick, we always talk about Hitchcock's quote, uh, the difference between surprise and suspense, yeah. and that is a perfect scene for suspense building is all I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have another little one, and I'll throw it to you. Um, the dialogue is actually, I think, in some ways not great, but in other ways amazing. Like yeah. It was kind of like I couldn't decide um i i actually i guess i kind of did land on i i think it's really really good because there's all these little one-liners that are so memorable they might be memorable because of the performance i'm not going to say it's necessarily the writing but even like like i wrote down you know um when tank comes in wakes up neo he says morning did you sleep you will tonight i guarantee it that's a great action movie line right sure that's yeah. just it's not like it's not breaking the bank he's not winning an academy award but it's like yeah i'm in when when Morpheus asks him, do you think that's air you're breathing now in the dojo? And you're like, oh, man. Oh, man. My mind's going crazy. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, I, wrote I actually down, wrote down. I wrote yeah, down ahead. the uh, why do my eyes hurt? You've never used them before. Just a great yeah. line. Just Stuff super, like that. Great little good. lines. Yeah. There is no spoon. That's going to come up in my essay later. <laughs> um, and then I, I even have the steak thing real quick, which is. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? And then he takes a bite and he says, ignorance is bliss. Mm. Again, a little on the nose, but kind of amazing dialogue. Like you're, I, you're there for all of that. And then, you know, add on to this, every single thing that Hugo Weaving says. And it's like, yeah, this is, it, yeah. it just works. It's just, yeah, man. it's, it keeps you in the story. Um, what you got? You, you, you take a couple. Yeah, I got some quick ones. Um, you know, it's been mimicked to death at this point, but it's easy to forget that the look of this movie was so, like, one of one and one of a kind. Yeah. You know, the costuming, the trench coats, the leather, like, all that stuff. 
Um, I think the look of the the ship and the and especially like the Sentinels is just like epic. Those things are terrifying. Yeah. They move in this really uncomfortable way. They look like they're swimming in air. Like there's just like a really cool uh, look to the entire design of the film, which I think yeah. is is incredibly memorable and easy to forget how innovative it was. Because like I said, it's been this, ripped off by every movie. This ever. was in my this was in my stray thoughts, but I'll say it now. Um, as an, as a sign of how impactful this movie was and how and what you're talking about how impactful its aesthetic was i genuinely believed from the age of 10 to like probably 18 or 19 that uh long black leather trench coats was like the epitome of style and you may or may not mock me but i I think every other like probably like let's be honest culturally probably every other guy had the same belief for who's around my age for like a, a sizable portion of their life, sure. I think. Yeah. It was yeah. like that is just so so cool, and then eventually you're like, okay, well maybe, maybe not so much for walking around. It got, and we'll talk about the cultural impact and the groups that about, yeah, yeah, co-opted yeah. the movie later. But I mean, that is that was true for a really long period of my life. I was like, this is so aesthetically cool. Every just single cool. thing in this yep, movie. That was the word yeah, I was thinking. It was of. so cool. Exactly. Well, exactly. And, and even like other details, like. I have no idea how this is not tacky and how this isn't a what didn't work. But the weirdly green hue of everything in the Matrix oh, is great. like yeah. really, really not distracting somehow. But you also notice it. And I think that's impossible. I don't understand how you could like backlight everything in half your movie with green light and have people notice it and without it being distracting. And yet here we are. Um, now, it's a great little uh, touch. I'm again... I'm again going to call ahead to my stray thoughts. That's actually a little bit controversial in movie circles. Um, I'm with you. I think it's great. I think it's great. Uh, the yeah. thing you may not realize is that was not in the original release. Oh. They changed that. So the sequels, the, in the original release, it was color graded pretty much the same, the whole Interesting. movie. Interesting. The sequels started the practice of in the Matrix is green and out of the Matrix is blue. And so they retroactively did that. I think there is color grading in the original release. It's just not as pronounced. Interesting. And they went back and made it like as pronounced as the sequels. Again, well, that, I, I changed my like mind. It. It's trash. I'm, I'm on board. Okay, cool. Anyway. I don't know how that's not distracting other than it's an example of their, um, mar- you know, their craftsmanship because it yeah, should be. I'm with you. I think, really it, I think it works. And it works yeah. for me. So. And I think it even serves an actual function, especially yeah. in the last part of the movie, that like as you're cutting back and forth between the real world and the Matrix, it's like, yeah, you, your brain is keeping track of where we are. So I, I think it's good. Um, I have a couple real quick. So we talked about this kind of gets with like the pacing and setting up stakes and stuff. But it occurred to me that this movie does something very similar to Pacific Rim, which is it introduces some allies to our character that like have this huge implied backstory and they're and they seem like really heavy and like really badass and just really intense and then it like kills them off very quickly yeah that's just that's just a great way again of setting up stakes essentially is it right it just sets up stakes really well that scene that scene is so like kind of a bummer and like kind of hard to watch um the not like the scene is what i'm referring to yeah um but again, it's really smart, and, and and it because again, it really sets up the stakes well. But also, I think the other thing it does is it calls down the kind of unwieldy ensemble cast to just four and really one protagonist, right? Like it just cuts out a lot of extraneous stuff. So it's like, okay, I really only have to keep track of four protagonists now: Tank and then our main trio. 
Yeah. Um, so it serves a story function too. It's just a really smart idea, and I just wish more movies did that. Like introduce yeah. again implied backstory, but then you just kill them off, and it's like okay, now I'm invested. I want to know more. I'm in. Hundred percent, man. Um, I, I mean, I, I poor mouse. I feel it every time when mouse uh, gets that killed. That was tough. Yeah. I don't and know. If mouse is necessarily who I'm most. No, 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 no. Uh, I, that's kind of a joke. <laughs> mouse is kind of a creep. I'm just uh, yeah, gonna say yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like that's kind of a joke. Uh, the unplugging <laughs> sequence is what you're talking about. And it's gut-wrenching. Yeah. And it's gut-wrenching, uh, kind of like what you were saying, for reasons that are almost uh, unexplainable, other than just perfect yeah. a perfect balance of hinting at their depth without overdoing yeah. it. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. Um, my last real... My, really, my last thing... Like, I have some small stuff that we'll get to later. But my last real thing um, is a little bit broad, but just in general, the premise is is so good. Yeah. That, and I, the I idea wrote that as my of, last one, too. Yeah. yeah. And the idea of this, you know, because among other things, like I, I keep talking about the way that the movie walks the line of having these crazy big ideas, but also being relatable for an average viewer. Any person, any person on the entire planet, if you give them that premise, if they've interacted with a computer in their lives, if you give them that premise of, hey, what if humanity is, you know, all of this is fake and humanity is trapped uh, as in, you know, the future with these machines. And so, you know, you can control this world if you, I don't know, have some spiritual thing or something. I don't know. That is, but that premise lands for anyone. Anyone will say, yeah. well, at least spend five minutes of just like, I wonder if I am in the Matrix. And, and you walk out of the movie the first time and you kind of look around and you're like, well, what if? You know, it, <laughs> it actually does that. Yeah. And, really, yeah. And it's just, and, and even like all the little details, like even in terms of world building, like having all these really cool uh, you know, names for things, the Nebuchadnezzar, Zion, Morpheus, the Matrix, Agents. It's just so evocative, I think is the word, right? It, yeah. It, it just, suddenly you're just, your mind's racing. Like, I just want to know more about this world and this universe and all of these things. And and you're so invested so quickly. I think it just works. And, and, and then, you know, guys talk in their dorm rooms for the next hundred years or whatever. But also, again, <laughs> I keep going back to my mom can just watch it and be like, that was fun. And then walk out and live her life. So it just does both of those things so well. And yeah, yeah. I think that's the premise is just such a good idea for an action movie. Um, what, what, what do you got? Well, yeah. No, I mean, I, I wrote the entire concept of The Matrix as, again, I mean, it's just restating what you already said, is that there's something about it that is like universally tickling to our intrigue and um, to our own hesitations about how our world works and yada, yada, yada. And, yeah. and that's just really cool. And at the same time, it's just like great sci-fi dystopian. Like the idea that the world is a computer program. And uh, that's just like amazing. It, 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 yeah. It's so much fun. It's nightmare fuel as much as it is thrilling to consider the implications. Um, you know, you get all sorts of great little tidbits, like the idea of downloading things like Kung Fu even tickles like our childhood mind where it's like, wouldn't that yeah. be cool? And that's like a flushing out of this like, digital world in which the landscape in which they kind of cast these people into um, that is just fully considered in some really fun ways that makes it thrilling yeah. to kind of enter. Um, I always loved the idea that the original Matrix failed because it was a utopia. It was, like it it was a utopia. That's so Absolutely cool. Absolutely. Like a cool little Easter egg that they threw in where it's like deep philosophy. Um, yeah. I, I, I enjoy the spirituality of the film, even if it's hardly comprehensible at times in terms of like, you know, you have this this futuristic dystopia where there's also still these old beliefs like prophecy and messiah. Um, very Dune-esque in that, 
in a way following sure. up on dune yeah yeah and then you know i also uh, one last little tidbit of an idea baked in the movie is there's like a really exciting premise about how you change your consciousness where i love the idea yeah. that the crew has to first engage neo within the rules of his world to bring him along because if they just shatter the rules of his reality he will go insane essentially is the implication so absolutely like, you're watching yeah. the movie and you're like oh they contact him by mailing him a phone that's a stupid plan until you realize it's because they have to meet him within his limits and modes of communication or else they'll lose him right i think yeah. that's just like a really cool small detail about again fleshing out what world we have been invited into that i think is fun to absolutely yeah yeah do you have anything else for why this movie works um murder You gotta, you gonna elaborate or? No, I thought that was a good transition into the more opaque conversations about what might hold this movie back. But okay, let's take a little, let's take a little <laughs> break, and then we're gonna get back with why this movie doesn't work. Okay, welcome back. Uh, the next section of the podcast, we talk about what maybe holds this movie back. Mike, I don't have a lot of things, but I have a lot written for the like four things I have. I don't yeah, know if, that's I don't about know if right. You have a similar. No, that's this about is right. maybe my smallest point. Um, so I, I'll just make it now. And I'm 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 genuinely curious where you land on this. Uh, a lot of '90s movies have this like very particular apathy about white collar jobs. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is like a very noted like cultural thing. There's books about this and stuff. I just realized watching this movie, I am so, so over that. Yeah. It is such a dated anxiety. And and I'm gonna go as so far as to say, frankly, kind of childish in hindsight. Yeah. Like like nowadays it's like, well, the world's ending like five different ways, but I guess it's tough for white, like middle aged guys in the nineties that their job is boring. You know, it's it's just like, what are we doing here? You think about this, you think about Fight Club, about yeah. Office Space, even an Office. Those are all great movies. Fight Club's a little more complicated, but these are all great movies. It's just funny that I'm like, now I am so over that anxiety. I'm like, who cares if your stupid job is boring? Like, yeah, man. what are we doing here? What's well, funny? So I, it, I don't know. No, it does. It reminds me of like her. But her is very openly like, you should relate to this character, but not like them. Like, it's not yeah. in any way holding them up as a positive figure when it comes to, like, the white male fragility and the childishness of what she feels and expresses emotions. And this... Her is not, you, you mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. This okay, yeah, yeah. era of movies, it, like, wants us to identify with these people, like, in a, almost a positive way, where it's like, you should want to be Neo and realize yeah. in your own pouty way that your job is meaningless or whatever. And, and yeah, I'm just, I'm with you. It's like, isn't it so strange <laughs> that none of these characters going through these existential crises about my white-collar job are, like, people of color or oppressed groups or anything like that? Because it's such a childish, silly, white person problem. Uh, yeah anyway absolutely it's crazy it's it's to be honest this is probably a better like i i would say this this hits a movie like fight club more office space gets a pass because it's a comedy and like i don't think office space wants you to take its main character very seriously either well and i um i do question well we're not gonna talk about fight club i do question the reading that fight club wants you to take those people seriously at all either it's a, a little that's a good point bit more vague this movie obviously holds Mr. Anderson up as a positive figure, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I so, think that's true. Anyway, yeah. I'm just with you. There's not um, much to say about it. It's just stupid. There's not much to say about it. 
My only other one that's small is only small because I honestly just don't... I don't know. I didn't do enough research slash I don't know how much I can speak to this. But I guess I have a question. Is Trinity a variation on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl? Yeah. Um, slash, you could also just maybe broaden the question and ask, is she just like a good female character? Um, it's tough when you realize that Trinity only exists basically to confess love. her love to Neo at the end. Yeah. yeah. And say That's tough. Life. Yeah. Um, arguably every character only exists because of their relationship with Neo. So like, you know, I, I think sometimes people can go too far with that where it's like, yeah, that's just the whole movie. It's just a very yeah. hero journey centric movie. Uh, but it is notable that where other characters exist in relationship with Neo of like helping him, she literally just falls in love with him. You said it. And like, that is the main way that she helps him. So yeah, you know, I, I, I'm probably not qualified to say anymore, but I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. But no, I felt it, like we had to talk about it, or at it, least it's a it. it's a jarring kind of, and I don't want to say manipulative. I think the Wachowskis are more honest filmmakers than that. But it is like, oh, let's make this empowered figure seem so strong and you know vibrant, and then when you actually write down on a sheet of paper what we know about the character, you're like, oh, this is like a a two D. Um. Yeah. Anyways, a two D character that only exists to fulfill the needs or the the self discovery of the white male lead, and in that case, yeah. yes, it's a manic. I mean, I'd never put the language of manic pixie dream girl, but I would say definitively, it kind of is. Um, yeah. And I just I don't know. I, I, there's not like you said. There's not much to say about that. That's such a common trope of the '90s and early 2000s, but it's worth noting. I will say, and I, I don't want to just give him a pass because of this, but it, it does land, though, the scene where she where they decide to go rescue Morpheus, yeah. and Neo's going to do it on his own, and then she gives him a verbal beatdown. That kind of lands. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so yeah, that works. But, yeah, it, it's, it, it is what it is. Um, I've, got, I've got another smaller okay? one before we get into yeah, big Yeah, ones. go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote, what didn't work, and this is like, I wouldn't call this a plot hole because I didn't catch it when I first saw it. And I've also come to discover, and this was going to come up in my stray thoughts, but maybe we can touch on it now, um, that this was not the original plot device of the movie. But the fact that they kind of yada, yada, yada away the idea of using humans as batteries with like fusion Mm -hmm. technology is like dumb because it's a dumb premise. And I mean, this is like an internet nerd thing. No sense. I'm not the first one to say this. You're right. But it's yeah. so dumb. And so this is interesting. And I don't know if this is true. This is a Reddit comment I read. But mm. this commenter who is definitively accurate and grounded in facts <laughs> um, said that originally... It might be one of the Wachowskis. Yeah, we don't know. Who's to say? <laughs> it's word of God. Yeah. So apparently, originally, the robots were supposed to be mining humans for the computing power of the brain. For processing and even power, things yeah. like yeah. creativity and consciousness, not for energy. And I think that's a far more interesting idea, even if it has its own pitfalls. Um, and the producers just thought that was too confusing and were like, make them batteries. Um, so yeah. I don't know if that's true, it, but it's at least more interesting. The battery thing is straight dumb, <laughs> especially I heard back the to it. same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was actually also on my list of what doesn't work. Um, I heard the same story, possibly from the same Reddit comments. So who knows? <laughs> um, Must be true. So like, you know, that's how that's how truth works on the Internet. Uh, it is funny because it is like, I, it's, I actually feel kind of conflicted because on the one hand, like the humans of the batteries thing is so obviously doesn't make sense. I think yeah. it's a problem. Yeah. Like yeah. if you have literally learned the, 
the laws of thermodynamics, which maybe <laughs> sa- may, maybe makes me sound like a nerd, but like you have heard learned that. Like if you took high school physics, you learned thermodynamics, and that's a very easy thing to apply. Of like, wait, humans need more energy than they give out. Like in every circumstance, that's, that's how physics works. So it's a problem. It's not good. Um, having said that, I actually am inclined to agree with the producer, and that's where like I'm, yeah. that's where I feel compl- complicated about. I'm sure. like, because again, going back to that metric of like someone who does not. Someone who's not a sci-fi fan, someone who I, I keep using my mom and I'm not being up on her. I'm trying to say like my mom does not care about movies the way I do. Right. And so for her, I think there is a value of like humans into batteries. Like when he holds up the battery, your brain is like, cool, I get it. Yeah. I'm in. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you, we don't need to do a whole thing. We don't need to like, what is that mean processing power? What did you know? It's not this whole complicated thing. It's just like, hey, energy. And you're like, cool, I get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. No more explanation needed. I think that's so, fair. Yeah, yeah. I, I put we need to address it. I actually would argue, like, I, I guess I just did argue that I don't know if it is actually a problem in the movie, um, but it is obviously wrong. And <laughs> Futurama has a great line where they say something about, like, I think the quote is uh, what she says, when The Matrix was released, everyone decided that it was obviously the dumbest idea ever in a science fiction movie of all time. And it's like, yeah, kind of a little bit. But again, I think it works. Yeah. Um, might as well just, are you ready for, can we just do one of the big ones? Or yeah, let's do it. Okay, a few months after this movie released, Columbine happened. Yeah. Right? And obviously, I mean, the shooters, they wore trench coats. It was, they were, they had obviously seen the movie. And it's just tough. And it's just like, what I wrote is, it's a bummer that a part of my brain, when the lobby fight happens, all I can think about, or, or there, there's a part of my brain that, that's there that's telling me like, wow. This is like you realize you're watching like the fantasy for like right wing edge lords, yeah. Who like including yeah. like people crazy enough to actually do these kinds to watch this and be like, I re- actually want to do that. And yeah. It's like that's a bummer and it just sucks and it's just like that's the world we live in and cool. Um, I would argue for what's worth, I, I and Mike and I we've I'm sure we've done this on this podcast we've talked about it, but I would argue very strongly that there isn't a direct line of blame from the movie or the movie mm. makers no. to no. those things. Yeah. Um, but it, it's worth mentioning just because it is a bummer and it's just depressing. And it's like, yeah, it's just, it is what it is. It's yeah. hard to get over that, that this movie set up the, and I think Mike, you're going to get into that with your essay probably a little bit too. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, we so, are. So we'll talk about that more then I'm with you. I, yeah. I'm, I'm not particularly interested in blaming artists for how their art is co-opted. I mean, I just think that's a miss. It's ridiculous more often than not. It's at the very least not, um, a complex enough conversation very often to actually capture reality. Yeah. It just kind of becomes a way to big dualism out of what well, should art do or go. be. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, we'll, we'll touch on that in my essay. I will say it, it. it's so interesting to me though that the Wachowskis have two pieces of art that have been co-opted in that way because V for Vendetta is, is the same. I can't watch V for Vendetta anymore without thinking of... Yeah freaking you know anonymous QAnon anyway and whatever. whatever yeah it's it's kind of nuts and and there's just and then obviously the red pill movement and and like you said columbine i don't know what it is about their art other than it's subversive and that kind of makes itself prone to radicalism but it is at least worth noting that there there's something about the way that they depict dystopia and and rebellion and stuff like that that seems to get lodged into the minds of quite frankly unstable people um yeah I don't have much to say about that and I don't blame the artist for that, but it's worth noting. And it is a bummer. That is the right word for it. It, it reminds me of 
the Joker and obviously the Aurora shootings. And you're just like, it just sucks that this art has been co-opted in such a way that tainted it. Um, in my consciousness, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the art itself. Yeah. I, I actually have a lot of thoughts on that, but I, I think I'm going to save that for your essay if that's cool, because yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to, yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that, that is, I mean, yeah, it's a bummer it is what it is. That's actually, I mean, I have some things that are going to be, kind of negatives in my stray thoughts maybe funner versions of negatives but that's mostly what i had for what doesn't work mike do you have anything else yeah um you know obligatory some of the cgi really doesn't hold up well which is like when he hits the pavement and it bounces it's such a dumb looking scene um but see but or, see or that even, one I, th- even, I i took for like it's supposed to be a little bit right sure, because it's that's like fine. that's just they made that program it's just not i meant get to be it a... it's always hard to know which it's like with prince's bride is this supposed to look ridiculously fake because it's yeah aping a genre or whatever uh, which I, frankly is like a serious plus side to the premise as well that's yeah. like when things are a little weak there your brain you're just like i don't know it's a simulation yeah there was a glitch in the matrix i don't know and then when uh hugo weaving explodes into green glowing trunks that are still oh screaming, yeah that part stuff that so part stuff <laughs> but other than that it's I like was, these it's I like was... this ps2 era like <laughs> yeah. chunks going off and you're like oh geez yeah, yeah. Oh, no. uh, overall oh, no. i need to say largely think it was successful and it holds up well cgi wise yeah um Gonna be blunt, this builds off of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I don't think this movie needed a love story. Um, and honestly, I, I yeah. don't have anything else to say about it because I think we actually covered it in the conversation about why I feel that way when we talked about the um, the character of Trinity itself. So just yeah. don't feel like that was very fleshed out or committed to or interesting. So. I would even go further and like, you know, again, maybe we're getting a little closer to our conversation later. I would actually say it's a negative it's it's a strong negative because of the way that it highlights the movie wanting to to be wish fulfillment yeah right so i would say that's the most damning thing i could say is that trinity just kind of randomly falling in love with neo for literally no reason is like part of the movie being like don't you want to be this person and that's part of why it succeeds that's part of why it's successful like like literally that's why it's popular but yeah. that part of it gets a little icky where it's like, kind yeah, would it not be, yeah, would it not be your, like your fantasy to suddenly be a superhero essentially and, and like the Messiah and also this incredibly hot woman is just randomly like, I'm in love with you desperately, even though I literally have never had a conversation with you. It's like, yeah, it's tough. It's not good. It's, it's, tough, it's tough I, I would say <laughs> it's a tough beat. It's just, it, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, we said it, it's, it's not good. So uh, that's as damning as I can get with yeah. the character. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. And, and again, to be fair, a lot of movies do that. That's a very common thing in the hero's journey narrative sort of stuff. Um, is making it like a wish fulfillment thing, but it's, it doesn't make it less like icky. And I think you're totally right. It also didn't need it. I would have been on the journey with Neo anyways. Yeah. You know, without that side of it. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anything else? Um, oh, do you want to talk about the sequels? Here's the thing about the sequels. Can I give my... Could you let me cook for, yeah, for 30 seconds? I mean, it's not long. It's not long. It was more of a question um, than a statement. Okay. Here's the thing. I would actually defend the sequels, probably. And the thing I would defend them with... And I've actually had this line for like 15 years. So I'm just we're just dragging out the hits at this point. I'm sure Mike and I have done this um, but uh, on our own. But what I'll say about them is this. They only fail because of the first movie. Okay, 
if the Matrix does not exist and you only have the sequels, they're not going to be good. I mean, here, let's be clear. They're not good movies. Okay. Yeah. But, but on their own, if you just forget about the first movie, they're like kind of passable, schlocky sci-fi. Okay. And so like to me, I'm like, oh no, I can watch them with that in my mind. And I have a, I have a pretty good time. The second one has really good action. Yeah. The third one is kind of maybe doesn't, but it is like has a couple interesting scenes. And I'm like, that's whatever. I'm I'm relatively interested in that. I've rewatched them a couple times. So I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm kinda there. I think the only reason they fail so spectacularly is because the first movie is so, 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 so good. Yeah. It's a little bit it's Godfather Three Syndrome. Yeah. On its own, you're like, yeah. that's okay. But then compared to a towering achievement, you're like, wow, that's garbage. Yeah. So that, that that's why I would say is is I I have fun. There's I think there's things that if anything, like there's philosophical. In fact, this is kind of a problem is they go so far off the deep end philosophically, but there's some stuff there that's even more interesting. Like I could actually talk more about the philosophy in the second and third film, but again, the movies themselves are also kind of trash. So it's like, what, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that that's what I would say is I, I kind of defend them, but also I acknowledge that they're trash. You know what? I have the perfect line. I, I'm stealing this from someone I read the other day. Um, I will defend them, but I also won't strongly disagree with anyone who just says they're garbage. Yeah, and, that's and fair. That's the end. I'm, I'm not really going to disagree with that, but I can make an argument for like, I don't know. There's, they've had a few saving graces. Um, do you have anything on them? No, I oh, think you, you covered the my CGI thoughts. of the, of the, cause we're never going to talk. We're never going to do these movies. So let me just get this out now. Um, a lot of the action in the second movie is like really, really, really good. Um, the scene where he's fighting the hundred agent Smiths and it transitions at one point to all CGI is like the worst looking CGI I've ever yeah, seen. It's bad. It's yeah, it's bad. It's real bad. It aged yeah, like two yeah. hours after the movie yeah, was released. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it it's was rough. Really good. It's a rough hang. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was tough. I think, um, you know, I always, I just always, whenever I rewatch this movie, I'm always the most damning thing I could say about the sequels is that I have never had a strong desire to rewatch them. Um, I think I've yeah, seen the second fair. one twice. I have literally never returned to the third one. Um, Did I, you even finish the third one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't hold it against it you if you didn't. Bad. If you got it's halfway through, movie. it just bounced. Um, yeah, I'm always a little intrigued by the idea of the. Kind of like with Dune, if the series just ended, open ended with the third, the first book, this case, the yeah. first movie. Yeah. Always kind of like that might have been better. I think there is a lot that is, you are right. The second one in particular has some action sequences that are dope. Yeah. But the, the balance. The one between, in the Merovingian's house, like the, that, oh, and, like and the, the interstate kinda, race. I mean, come on. Oh, man. my God. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. It's great. But, um, but it does fundamentally miss the balance between philosophy and popcorn or ambition and execution. Both of them do. Yeah, they're not so, fun. Yeah. They're not fun movies to watch. Way yeah, too much talking. Way too much weird sex scenes in Zion. Yeah. <laughs> Just way too much of a lot of things I didn't want. So, yeah, that's about all I got. It's tough. Um, let's, you know, I actually have a great segue into Stray Thoughts from let's there. So it. let's do it. So Stray Thoughts, we'll, we'll go back and forth. Um, I have a lot of stray thoughts that are preceded by the word allegedly because there's a lot of like 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 half-assed research as regards to this movie um and i've loved this movie for a long time so it's like i've just collected a lot of information that i can't even remember where i got it from or research it so like this one this one i'm most dubious about because i struggled finding sources for it so i found a couple but it was shady 
So this may not be true, but it would be cool if it is. So allegedly, the Wachowskis initially conceived an entire trilogy. Every studio flatly denied that, was flatly like, there's literally no way we're ever going to give you money to do a trilogy up front. So they decided to condense their trilogy into one movie, mm. removing a lot of extraneous subplots. And that movie became The Matrix. Interesting. And what's interesting about that, if it's true, I, I kind of don't think it's true. But if it is true, it's interesting because, A, I think it explains why The Matrix works so well, why it's paced so well. Because they, they actually had a lot of story that they just had to cut out like boring subplots to get to like the meat of the story and put that in. That also explains why the sequels suffer because it's like they never intended to have to go into all these. Like imagine that it's just like we never really wanted to go to Zion or see what that looks like. We never yeah. really wanted to have to really flesh out what the Messiah thing meant. So I, I, if that is true, it explains so much of why this movie works and the sequels don't. Again, I don't actually know if it's true or not. So, you know, yeah, take, it, take it or leave it. But yeah. it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Uh, what you got? Um, Neo's entire introduction is straight up how kids get kidnapped. It's like, it's a public safety video. A stranger hits you up on AIM using code and you do what they ask you to do is like the definition of stranger danger. And we all know that this actually ends with uh, his kidneys getting stolen. So, um, You know, Mike, I'm looking forward, now that you have kids, I, I really want you to continue the tradition of watching yeah. Yeah, don't do this. Too I was going to show him this and be like, don't do this. Yeah, that's what I was going to suggest. Is you, you Perrin watches this at seven years old, and you're like, so Perrin, what have we learned today? We've learned not to accept information from strangers on the internet. It goes <laughs> back. You don't want to wake up in, in that in an online. You don't want to wake up in that freaky pod thing in the stupid future. You want to stay here in the matrix. Be like Cipher. That's going to be your <laughs> lesson to this kid. It's tough. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly, the Wachowskis weren't given anything near the budget that they wanted for the movie. So they took the budget that they were given, secretly filmed only the very first scene, Matri or Trinity's fight, then presented that back to Warner Brothers and asked that on its strengths they be given the budget they initially requested. <laughs> what a Lord move. <laughs> Great story. Oh. Again, don't know if it's true. Like, struggled to find sources, so I'm like, eh, that one's tough. But I did hear that. I, I think that if true, that's an amazing story. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I love that. I love the idea that that's true. Again, I don't actually know. Um, but yeah, good times. This is um, just a question, John. Should Neo just yeah. have done mescaline instead? <laughs> would you know? Arguably, he would have been happier yeah. i mean this gets back to like are we i feel like this podcast we're starting to just defend around the cypher like we're, <laughs> we're just like you know what cypher had great points like maybe maybe the whole betraying humanity was tough but like besides that he's he's got some he's got some stuff going here he's making a lot of sense making a lot of sense uh i've never done mescaline mike so i don't know okay. uh, but the answer is yes he should have just done that um <laughs> My next one, there's that, there's that scene where the, uh, the, you know, the interrogation scene with Agent Smith at the beginning. Um, this is actually not my straight thought. I do want to note that the mouth closing and the bug burrowing into his belly button was like nightmare fuel. Oh and, yeah, it's awful. Uh, just like the worst. Hate, hate, and, hate. And really, really stayed with me. Uh, that those I did not watch that scene for rewatch that scene for a long time. Hate, 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 hate. But I wasn't. I was actually bringing it up because of this. Neo says, "I know my rights. I want my phone call." 
I'm not a lawyer. Is that how that works? Is that right? Is that like a legal right to get a phone call? I just don't think that they yeah. say that in movies. And I feel like they're just banking on no one really knowing that that's true. I just feel like that's not a real thing. And it's not like I can just demand as a right being able to call someone. Are you sure? Um, so just, I, you, you know what? I guess I'm not. So, I mean, you're going to be my first call. You realize. Uh, okay. So I, I Googled, you is it true? And let's yeah. see. This person this is the first one. First answer that was upvoted the most is no, it is not true. It is also not true that you have a right to make a phone call immediately after being arrested. Once you have been incarcerated and you are awaiting trial, the jail must make reasonable accommodations for you to arrange to post a bond or contact an attorney to work on your defense. Okay. So once so, I'm incarcerated, but he's not incarcerated. So you know what? That's why they were so, um, so dismissive of him because he yeah. didn't know the law. Learn the law, kids. That's your that's your second lesson for parent. Learn your rights. There is another universe where we go through all of Neo's introduction only to discover that this is a Black Mirror episode about kids using the internet to make sport out of boomers. That was the exact sentence I wrote. <laughs> I'd watch that episode. That'd, that'd <laughs> yeah. be a great movie. That'd be like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like it starts out the same, but then he just gets drugged and is just, yeah, it's just like being catfished. It's great. I'd watch that. Yeah. Um, kids these days this is a bit this this one's a little bit weird I feel weird about this one because like I don't know if the Wachowskis themselves weren't um, trans I don't know if we would be talking about this but a lot of people have noticed trans metaphors in this movie Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's just something to mention like so dead naming comes up a lot like like you think about like you know uh, uh, Agent Smith refuses to call him Neo and like there's that scene where he's uh, you know the subway's coming and he's like Mr. Anderson and his my name is Neo. Like the whole pills thing is supposedly a part of this too. I there's a lot of these you can look it up. I, I didn't write them all down. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's cool. Again, I feel a little weird because I'm just like I don't know if we'd be talking about that if the filmmakers weren't also trans. But whatever, it's interesting. I think. Yeah. Um, and may or may not come up later as part of like the whole. Is this how is this movie totally misinterpreted by its audience versus its creators? Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting interesting conversation but yeah just wanted to note that straight thought what you got yeah absolutely um i love how when they get the bug out of neo uh trinity just throws it out the car window and the first thing i wrote was <laughs> i guess they didn't learn not to litter from the environmental collapse of their world <laughs> i don't know or it goes the other way it's like we're the matrix so who cares it's simulation litter yeah i just don't think you get to choose to turn off that mode of thinking when you're in the real world <laughs> It's not how that's not how the human mind works. Anyway, um, you know, piggybacking off of that, the bug thing—it's a memorable scene, and we've talked about it a couple times. Have you ever noticed that uh, the subplot has no impact on the movie whatsoever? No, he's yeah, bugged, and literally in the next scene, it's removed. That always struck me as odd. I always wondered if that was like if we think that the movie was originally supposed to be like a trilogy. I always wonder if that was a leftover subplot. Like originally, like it involved a lot more, but they had to cut it down and down until it was only like he gets bugged and then it gets removed. Well, just always I, seemed weird to me. Like I, like I said earlier in the what work, this movie does a lot of revealing rules for the world and like kind of keeping you un, unstable in the sense of not knowing what's going on. I think that's, that's one of them. Yeah. I mean, it's just like one of those elements. Um, I do think they move off of it too quick and it's like really easy for them to debug people. So maybe the machines should like try harder, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. point. Yeah. 
Um, the water slide out of the battery cell looks dope AF. Sign me up. Really? That is not the... Love water <laughs> that parks. not the reaction I had. <laughs> little, little 12-year-old Mike is just sitting there like, man, that looks fun. I want to wake up in the... Go down a horrifying slide. He's literally in like... He's in, the, he's in hell, Mike. He's in hell. He's surrounded by a vision of hell. And you're just like, man, that looks fun. Do a little water slide down into the sewer water system. Water slides great. are so dope. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> no Good times. more comment. Um, the Matrix is a film version of the band Nirvana. <laughs> because. Go on. Wait, wait, wait for it. <laughs> you have me. Um, aesthetically, they're both dressed up in like counterculture alternative kind of scene. But the reason they became so famous is because beneath the surface, they actually represent very traditional either mm. songwriting or filmmaking. That's they're both crowd pleasers. Yeah. yeah, that was going to be my essay. So I, my essay became different, so I just made it a straight thought. Yeah. But I was just thinking about it. I was like, you know, it's weird how they both like, again, aesthetically very counterculture. But like if you dig down beneath the, the surface, it's like just popcorn, popcorn songwriting, popcorn filmmaking. It's just crowd pleasers. Just kind of funny. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what you got? Um, I have a two-parter. The first part is yeah. humanity blotting out the sun to try to stop the computers that they created is like the most on-brand thing I've ever heard. That one's a little too real. Human beings in my entire life. That one's life. a little too real, yeah. When you brought up Futurama, <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's like a bit in Futurama that's too close to home. And uh, related, I wrote, damn, Mr. Anderson is out here making a whole lot of sense, though. So see his monologue about all other mammals finding equilibrium with their environment. And we can't seem to agent Smith's um, agent Smith's speech. You said Mr. Anderson. Oh, my agent, agent Smith. Smith. Agent Smith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's tough. So, okay. So, so far we've defended cypher. I'm just, saying. you're now defending. I'm just, saying. I'm just saying he's making a lot of sense. Mike he blotted out you? the sun. <laughs> Mike, have you been going down the like red pill subreddits and stuff? Is this like an Yeah, that's what with, made like, me think know? that Adrian Smith was right. I've read about these people who turned this okay. movie into red pill garbage and I was like, you know what? Okay. Maybe human beings do need to be put in prison of their own creation. Maybe he's got some points. That's that's tough. Uh man, I, I'm I'm depressed. Well let's just move Too on. Dark. Hey, speaking of on. the red pill, uh this is like just maybe a headcanon I've had for a long time. Does the blue pill just kill him? At this know. point, he That's knows too much. So I always, I always took that for granted. I read other people like apparently it's not a common thing. I've just always thought it. Yeah. I always thought it just did because I was like, at this point, he's met Morpheus. He knows too much. They're not just gonna let him go home. They're gonna kill him. Obviously, he has too much information. I don't know. I've never actually thought about what the know. blue pill does. I kind of just took it right, for granted that it like reset his mind or wiped his memory, but that doesn't make sense. So I don't know. Uh... But yeah, because like know. he already the, the 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 agents already know him and like you know they're gonna kill him probably if he, yeah if he doesn't yeah. so interesting so yeah I, don't know. I always thought I just killed him anyways okay. a little dark but you know yeah, it's a dark I guess world so. Old little parent has to learn sooner or later old Morpheus killing off all the peoples anyway. old Morpheus <laughs> um continuing the Keanu Reeves praise I wrote Keanu Reeves was born and destined to say the line. I know Kung Fu. Greatest line reading ever. Yeah. He also, I also read as a secondary part of that. He also has the perfect face for someone having the matrix explained to them. 
He's just like perpetual whoa face, and that's. What I was I gonna like. say that was the more iconic Keanu Reeves moment. Yeah, is, is when he's when um, Morpheus jumps over the, the between the two buildings, and he just says whoa, whoa. And it's like that's simultaneously that's simultaneously an incredibly dumb line, but also a perfect line for that perfect moment casting, and for man. Keanu Reeves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um. Ever since I was a little kid, I've loved the thing where Neo's scream turns into the modem dial-up tone, mm. which also, I realize, dates me. The fact that I recognize what yeah. that is. Like, Tough uh, a freaking Zoomer will be like, oh, what's that weird thing they do to his voice? And I'm like, shut up. But that's but I always thought that was cool as a kid. Even as a kid, I was like, man, I'm in. Little touches like that. It's good stuff. It's good filmmaking. Agreed. Um, what do you yeah. think the robots told the public about what happened at the office building? Um, gas leak. <laughs> just 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 gas leak you know i bet i bet they use that because here's the thing a machine also uncreative right like that's mm. you know that, that's just something everyone knows machines not very creative uh so yeah i think they just always go back and like people are noticing in this fake world this is why in the second movie they reveal they've had to reset the matrix like six times because people eventually keep being like hey why is it perennially 1999 and B, uh, why are there all these gas leaks like causing these weird <laughs> things to come up? It's weird. Um, every year, this movie is responsible for millions of middle school kids being disappointed when they learn about algebraic matrices. I know I was. Uh, I was, yeah. you know, algebra two or whatever. Like we're gonna learn about matrices. I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna make a matrix. This is gonna be so exciting. And then you just draw like a stupid like chart essentially like you know this thing with this thing equals this thing and this thing with and you're like wow this is literally the most boring thing i've ever seen not in a single life. agent smith fight and not all a single of my agent smith fight. so that's when i knew that i was an english kid yeah that's when it all clicked <laughs> like, wow math sucks <laughs> you um got? you can't be dead because i love you uh doesn't actually bring dead people back to life and this is a, a realization that is actually the rock bottom moment for most people in their lives. Mm, that's tough. Yeah. Maybe, you know, something we didn't consider is that also wish fulfillment in the other direction. Uh -huh, that's sure. like really, that's like a sad sentence, but like, yeah. you know, like you want to be, sometimes you want to be Trinity. You want to be able to say, you want to be like, Hey, don't be dead because I love you. And it's like, okay, well I guess I'll wake up. Yeah. And so, yeah. That's yeah. Tough. That's just not how the world works. Mm. Womp womp. Um, Hearing about Zion from Tank was way cooler than actually seeing it in the sequels. And then, I, and then I wrote, and then I wrote a little sad face. That's how that's how I feel about that. It's like 100%. Uh, that was that was a real bummer actually. Because when he says, "Was he says like put it this way: if the war was over tomorrow, Zion is where the party would be." At. Yeah, and then you you're see like, the party, I'm, and you're like, "Ew." Yeah, they're like, oh, "I'm good. <laughs> I don't need that." Ew. Um, is a movie going straight into Rage Against the Machine? At the end of it, uh, the most '90s thing ever. Well, and the song is "Wake Up," which is uh, a <laughs> so it's on the so nose. it's a little it's on the nose. But actually, I wrote this is on the nose, but it's also just kind of perfect. Yeah, I, yeah. I was on board. I'm not even I'm not a Rage Against I'm not a Rage fan. Are you, Mike? Are you a Rage Against Machine? I went through you a phase. Like you would have been. I went through a phase. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of people went through. I think I yeah. went through a phase, but yeah. I'm kind of yeah, over yeah, it. Yeah. But I, I'm it not works. like I don't dislike Rage, but I'm not like into Rage anymore. You know. They're fine. Uh, it's really cool how Keanu Reeves has kept working with the Matrix stunt team. Uh, <laughs> director of, of John Wick, I think, was the 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 stunt coordinator from this uh -huh. movie or something like that. So 
What a what a what a good guy. Nailed it. Just Nailed he it. he recognizes talent, as they say. Yeah. Um, this is my last what one, John, and that is simply to let you know that the scene where Neo nonchalantly wards off Mr. Smith with one hand before dispatching him effortlessly is how I feel yep. when I get into debates with you about movies. Uh, that's generally okay. how I imagine those going. It's how it feels, <laughs> and it's how it ends. So, do you know what I? Do you know when he holds up his hand and stops the bullets? That's how I feel when you criticize Avatar. <laughs> I just, I was like, I can feel it coming at me, but I'm just, no, and I just, I just, you know, I just, I'm impervious. It's incredible. Um, I was just gonna, I'm just gonna roll through these real quick. Um, tough break for all the people whose bodies the agents took over and were then subsequently murdered by our gang. Yeah. It's just, just tough beat. Um, especially the poor guy, whatever poor guy agent Smith took over at the end that Neo then blows him up from the inside. It's just like, yeah, I guess sucks. Sucks to be that dude. Um, this is, I don't know if you know, Mike, this is deservedly the first movie ever to be a star Wars movie for special effects Oscars. Whoa. Um, it beats Star Wars Episode One. Uh, obviously, the superior movie. I mean, we all know that. Uh, you know, Matrix doesn't have Jar Jar Binks, so it's a little tough. But uh, good times. Do you have any? Do you have any thoughts on Jar Jar Binks, Mike? Um, great character. Yeah, wish great he had character. more. Wish he had more lines. Great character. Uh, the not like this scene. It's it's like pretty chilling. It's a great line. It's a bummer. Um, not like this has also become a Twitch emote, so the effect is kind of lost on me now. Because uh, you just you just say it when something like depressing happens in like a like when you're you're watching a fighting game and your favorite player is going down bad, so you just start spamming not like this. It's tough, that's but that's all out. I think yeah. about now. That's the internet summed up in one. Okay, Agent Smith says when talking about the Matrix simulation, he says billions of people. Blah blah blah. He goes in this whole speech, right? So we can deduce that the Matrix is simulating an entire planet. If, if that's the case, how come all of the action takes place in exactly one city? I never got that. Like, why don't they go anywhere else? And also on that note, why is that one city like exactly the same city as Fight Club and Office Space? Like this unnamed, depressing future city, like vaguely Chicago, where it's just white collar jobs and people yeah. being depressed? That checks yeah. out. It's like in Seven, where they're actually in hell, so they never named the city. It's like that. Oh. Is that a fan theory? I never heard that. Oh, yeah. Well, well let's do the Seven Pod another day. But yes. I'm never going to do the Seven Pod. Yeah, I we can do I the Seven Pod to talk movie. about murder. More I'm murder. I'm out. <laughs> nope. Can't get, can't, get, can't get through that movie. It's tough. But yes, there is um, a fan theory that the reason it goes unnamed is it's a, the whole film is a descent into hell for the characters. So it's like Dante's nice. Inferno spiraling down. Good times. Uh, man, Tank did not waste any breath eulogizing Morpheus before they were going to kill him, huh? Yeah. Morpheus, here's the whole here's the whole speech. I got it for you. Morpheus, you are more than the leader to us. You were, pause, a father. Goodbye. And then he goes to kill him. That's Dang, it. It's like fam. 15 words. <laughs> That's how I'm going to eulogize you one day. Yeah. Like, Mike, <laughs> you are more than me. the podcast partner. You were a pastor. Goodbye. And I'll just Goodbye. walk off. They're all like, wow, is that it? <laughs> Profound. Um, how exactly does the lobby fight go down without any agents showing up? They can God, morph into no, regular dude. people. So I, I don't get I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying. It's a great scene. It's just like, wait a second. How did this happen? I, I also uh, don't particularly understand how 
they get killed so easily with the Gatling gun. But anyway, it's just like, well, we got a Gatling gun, so this now that's it makes them we're not we're, we're hard to because it's a Gatling gun. <laughs> kind of sticking in that scene for a second, the mechanics of Neo and Trinity riding the pulley up the elevator shaft and then somehow ending up on top of the roof never made sense. And I don't mm. think they even I don't think they understood how it worked either because yeah, it just cuts try. to them. Yeah, it doesn't even show you like what exactly they do to get to. It's just suddenly they're fighting on the roof, and it's like cool. And I'm okay with that. Um, I genuinely never understood why. So after Neo saves Trinity from the helicopter crash, like the epic music comes in, and they're all like, "Oh my god, he's the one!" And it's like this really intense thing. I never understood why they're saying that at that moment. Yeah, at that what, point, he hasn't what? done anything specific to being the one. He's just kind of done stuff. Like none of that like was doesn't it, it outside just makes, the realm of possibility. It makes so much more sense when he comes back to life that that's when that line. Yeah, exactly. Plays. I don't get exactly. it. Yeah, it's so strange. It never made sense to me. Oh, um, this is it. No one could grab a helicopter. <laughs> Guess this is it. I think everyone of a certain age, whenever I'm playing like online games and stuff like that. Often I will have in my playlist for music, like the music from the, the lobby fight scene. Mm, it's yeah. just so like, I, I think everyone a certain age has to do that at one point. And it's, it's incredible. Um, last point. If I were to make, I could have said this earlier. If I would were to make a top 10 list of movies, I wish I had seen in the theater when they were first released. Ugh, yeah. This would be like Number one or one. two, honestly. Yeah. I think Star Wars would be one. And this would be like two. Maybe Jaws. Probably. Yeah, Jaws is up there. You're right. You're right. Armageddon, but it's it's, it's way <laughs> Armageddon. Uh, man, you you took the words out of my mouth, Mike. <laughs> That's I guess I got nothing. You you, you bested me. You bested me. Uh, stick around after the break. We're gonna get to our listeners. everybody welcome back in this part of the podcast mike and i have each prepared an essay uh basically just diving deeper into some aspect of the film or something related to it mike i went first last week are you good to uh good to start yeah man let's do it okay whenever you're ready go for it it's hard to exaggerate the matrix is a cultural moment or how it achieved the status of era defining cinema pretty much overnight and yet it still holds a complicated legacy not due to anything it did per se, but rather because of how its images, concepts, characters, and narratives have been used by conspiracy theorists. As we've discussed already in the podcast briefly, the red pill, living in a simulation, and many more aspects and ideas from the Matrix have been co-opted over the years by incel groups and just generally bad actors, perhaps more than any other modern cinematic work. And I believe that's largely because The Matrix encapsulates two key components for why conspiracy theories are so intoxicating, enticing, and prevalent. First, psychologically, they allow us to avoid the horrifying reality that we inhabit a universe that, at times, is chaotic and completely out of our control. Just think about some of the most insane conspiracies that you've heard promulgated this decade. Those swirling around tragedies like Sandy Hook and other school shootings. In their cold details, these events remind us that our universe is often defined by chaos and disorder, where beyond anything we can control, someone we've never met, either because of mental illness or some other derangement, can walk into our child's school and in an instant destroy our entire lives. 
with an act so unimaginably evil from our perspective that it's impossible to even begin to comprehend what its devastation would mean. As a father of two, accepting that that is a part of my universe outside of my control is nauseating, painfully surreal to think about, humbling, and impossibly to actually grasp fully. In fact, I think if I were to stare into that reality or walk around considering and contemplating it all day long, I would just go insane. Which is where conspiracy theories provide psychological relief. Imagine if instead of facing that reality at all, one could, instead, simply take all that existential anxiety and deny it by creating a fake big bad, a force, group, or person that's secretly behind all of the pain, all of the chaos, all the disorder, something or someone concrete that we can oppose and more importantly, potentially defeat. Thus ensuring that all those bad things will never happen again, or more importantly, will never happen to us. Psychologically, that's just so much more comforting than accepting our often brutal reality. And ultimately that's the key invitation of these theories, to not have to stare into those abysses. And honestly, if it was just about an individual's delusion or coping mechanism, then really these theories wouldn't be so bad. But that's not the case, because these phenomenon actually mess seamlessly with the second component that these conspiracies feed off of when it comes to our humanity, our need to feel special and unique. Again, one of our greatest existential nightmares is that we as human beings are unimportant, irrelevant, and incapable of changing our destinies, if we have a destiny at all. And ultimately, such conspiracy theories allow us to avoid that truth altogether. I mean, just think about it for one second. What is it that they fundamentally tell us? Well, I would argue that they fundamentally tell us that the opposite is true. They tell us you are the only one who gets it. You are uniquely intelligent or aware enough to understand what's really going on. You are, as the Matrix says, the chosen one. The one person given the eyes to see reality as it actually is and the power to change it. They whisper to us, you're special. And embracing that will save you from the banal, normal destiny and existence that everyone else around you is doomed to. Honestly, when you boil it down to its bare bones, it's just a shot of self-importance right into our veins that these theories provide us with. And with those two components in mind, this need to feel special and the avoidance of reality as it is, it's easy to see why the Matrix has become a lightning rod for such theories and actors. Because intended or not, it perfectly encapsulates both components. Even a brief survey of the script captures what I mean. Like when Trinity says to Neo, the answer is out there, it's looking for you, and it will find you if you want it to. Or when Neo's boss says, the time has come to make a choice, Mr. Anderson. Either you choose to be at your desk on time from this day forth, or you choose to find yourself another job. Or when Morpheus says, you're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, and there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. I mean, that's the very nature of conspiracy and what these theories prey upon. They highlight and latch onto that sense of something being off, something that's at the very least felt, if not partly true. Of course we feel like something's wrong in the world. It's full of suffering, paradox, hardship, injustice. 
Of course, with investigation, we see bondage everywhere. Because there are, in fact, systems, institutions, and actors, politically, economically, and socially, that benefit from manipulation and human suffering. Off things like systematic racism, injustice, greed. In each, there's a kernel of truth, or at the very least, a relatable feeling. But here's the problem. From that point of connection, we see that their truth ends. Because from there, they often veer in one of two paths. First, they often veer into distortion. The fact that they're birthed to avoid the complexities of our reality means that fundamentally they reach a point where they stop making sense of our reality. They reach a point where they inevitably become toxic or at the very least incapable of effectively helping people accept or respond to reality. Healthy worldviews or spiritualities tell us how to accept what needs to be accepted, control what we can, recognize what we can't, ultimately knowing the difference and responding accordingly and appropriately. However, on the other hand, unhealthy ones like these conspiracies tend to misidentify, simplify, deny, or escape, almost always attacking the wrong things in the wrong ways without resolving our root anxieties because they fundamentally do not capture the world as it is. But even worse than this one path is the second one. And that is when these kernels of truth, these connection points, these feelings veer into manipulation. When an individual or group looking to expand their influence waylays that connection into control, taking that feeling or that nugget of truth and distorting it around their narrative of problem and solution that it obviously empowers themselves. Selling it as the truth no one else is willing to tell you. Drawing a desired action from their audience, most often injustice, oppression, violence, or scapegoating, an oppositional group or avatar of their resentments. Having fed that desire for uniqueness and offering a simple solution to our dread of this chaotic universe, they're able to motivate ordinary people to extraordinary acts of humanity, even against their own blaring conscience or doubts. Again, to quote Morpheus, you have to let it all go, Neo. Fear, doubt, disbelief, free your mind. Which is only haunting because it's followed up soon after with this quote. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around, and what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged, and many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Great lines in a movie, but also thinking that when combined and placed into reality, ultimately just produce the greatest horrors of human history. Get rid of any doubts of the truth I've given you and recognize that any opposition to it is the enemy. That, once accepted, can motivate human beings to do anything. It alters the very framework of how we see other people especially those who don't accept the comforting false realities that we've chosen to inhabit. They become one sleeping mindless sheep, the people who just can't wake up to what we clearly know to be true. Or two, they become villains, people actively upholding the truth we see, but that are inherently and unchangeably evil. Or three, they become treacherous collaborators, the ciphers, those who see what's going on but choose to ignore it or protect it because they're simply 
too afraid to embrace what waking up entails because quite frankly, they're weak. In all, regardless of innocence or guilt, you're able to justify doing anything to anyone who opposes or disagrees with you. The sheep are in the way of their own freedom. The villains are the cause of the chaos you fear. The traitors are the worst of all turncoats who just can't face the truth and need to be removed to make progress. I mean, that's the horror of it all. You can't be wrong, and anyone who says you are must be stopped because their loss is actually for their own good, or worse, for the greater good, the pursuit of which can allow and justify almost anything. Again, as Morpheus says, if you are not one of us, you are one of them. Anyone we haven't unplugged is potentially an agent. And to close, I actually want to be very clear. I love the Matrix, and I do not believe that any of these conspiracies were what the Matrix or the Wachowskis intended to convey motivate or produce nor have i ever found it very interesting insightful truthful or honest to blame art for how it's co-opted manipulated and abused for the purposes of other people and the world but the fact that it has been co-opted so thoroughly does provide insight into how these things operate what inside of us they so effectively feed and how dangerous the acts they can motivate from us truly are if we don't take them seriously and for today it's that first step of seeing these things as they are, waking up to their realities. Well, for today, I hope that's enough to help us all begin to wake up to reality as it is. So where does Bigfoot fit into this? Is, oh, is yeah. Kinda... Um, well, no, because I say conspiracy is not truth. Okay, that's the that's the problem. Big Bigfoot isn't. Yeah, it's just know, real. I've, I've been to the I've been thing. to the Pacific Northwest. I've seen it. Yeah, Mike. I think that's great. Even without the uh, acknowledging the greatest conspiracy theory, which is the Loch Ness monster. But you know, also whatever. not a conspiracy. Also real. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Um, I think that I'm really intrigued by this. So so Mike had kind of hinted at me where he was going, and I have some thoughts already prepared, but. In general, I'm I'm very intrigued by the way that you know a movie can become co-opted, which is obviously what Mike is what Mike is talking about here. I think you know one thing Mike got to at the end of that essay, you're, Mike, you're talking about the way that it sets up an in and out, and I, I think that you know part of the problem, quote unquote, with the movie is that it is a hero's journey it's a very mm. archetypal way of looking at the world and on the one hand that's fine um but on the other hand all heroes journeys have inherent in them so many of the things you're talking about they they always inherently involve a binary sure. a, a sense of like am i in or am i out do i get it or do i not and i think this one maybe lean steers into that skit a little bit strong but that's always going to be part of it i think also they always involve wish fulfillment to a certain to a certain degree, right? Sure, yeah. And and I, I sometimes think that the openness of the, the blankness of like the protagonist is part of the problem here because they want you to to want to be him. They want you to buy into, you know, wanting to be that person. So everything is kind of open-ended. Everything is kind of ambiguous. You can kind of read into a lot of the movie, I think, very easily. And especially because the, the metaphors are so powerful 
right? The red pill, blue pill, the the matrix itself, the all of the you know the system and all the stuff that works for the popcorn level side of the movie, but then that's it, it's problematic because it's so easy to just take that metaphor and just run with it and take it somewhere. I do think you're right, completely different from where they ever intended it to go. Um, I think the best example of that is Neo's final speech of the movie. Because on the one hand, it works great for his journey in the movie. It works well for, uh, you know, the actual hero's journey we've been going on. But also when you hear it in its totality, you're like, I could that could be about anything. Anyone yeah. could take this. And, and, and go with where, where they want with it. The speech is, I know he's talking to the machines. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how this is going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone. And then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls without borders and boundaries, a world where anything is possible, where you go from here is a choice I leave to you. So on the one hand, that's just a great speech. But on the other hand, that is so easy to co-opt into whatever movement I want to co-opt it into, right? Uh, to just take that idea, to take that kind of language, that kind of overtones, that kind of rebelliousness. Mm. I think I even once heard, I once heard it even said somewhere of like any movement Will can portray itself as the rebellion, as opposed to the empire. Thinking of Star Wars again, right? And this movie is just takes that idea of the rebellion and takes it to the extreme of we are the entire world around us is operating against us. Yeah, and we are the good guys. Yeah, and it's just like on the one hand, there's a reason that's such exciting filmmaking, but on the other hand, it's like, oh, that's tough when you consider. I I just. I, the only reason I'm bringing all this up, I just think that this is why this movie is so easy to co-opt, right? Yeah. Is that, is is this, the, the way it deals with these ambiguous, strong, powerful metaphors. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I yeah. might have just repeated what you were saying. No, but. no, I, I think you brought clarity to a lot of it. Um, because I think what's it critical with art is like, and we talk about this all the time, and it is great. Like, I, I feel like I make it, not gray enough when I'm just like depiction does not mean endorsement. And the fact that people can't realize that is their problem, not the problem of the art. Right. We mm -hmm. talk about that all the time with, um, Wolf of wall street and yada, yada, yada. But like what they're depicting in this is just like these human urges, like these human patterns of thought, these things that are universally relatable. Something feels mm -hmm. wrong. Something is off. There is like, like I said, there's a sense of bondage. There's a reason that this is compelling storytelling is that it's like human history and the human condition. And it's just like, we should be able to write movies that touch on these things that are universally relatable. These feelings or these motivations or these uh, phenomenon, right? The, mm. the problem. <laughs> so anyways, I'm not going to blame the artist for depicting that. Yeah. That being said, man, I, I found myself questioning my own line of thinking with that whole, the matrix is a system and these people in it are kind of in our way and we can do whatever we want to them for their own good. Like that line is horrifying. And I don't yeah, know. That's not good. That, I that's really, tough. really yeah. would have liked for this movie to in any way have like had a different view on, hey, 
all people are expendable in the matrix kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I just don't, I am more likely, and I think it's more honest to be like these unstable people, broken people, sick people would have reached these. We know they would have reached these dangerous conclusions because just look at human history. The matrix did not create yeah. this impulse. You're like, Go look at yeah. Nazi Germany. Go look at a thousand dictatorships and how they've used propaganda and scapegoating over the course of human history. It's, yeah. it's something in us that leads us to latch on to these motivations, right? So I don't know. I'm, I, I'm well, and as, going I would off say, the deep as end, a but. sign of it's okay, as a sign of how disconnected the metaphors that a movement steals can be from the thing it stole those metaphors from. I always cite the fact that like Nazis incorporate. Uh, Christian imagery yeah. into their yeah. rule, which is of course a religion that was started in Judaism. And yeah. of course they, they, they root that into all of their dumb thinking, but it's like all, it's still crazy to think about it. It's, again, it gets to the idea of like, you know, you can steal a metaphor while having no idea what the thing is talking about. Yeah. 100%. Right. And, and I would say that this is an example of that. Um, Cause it's, it's not really connected at all with what the movie's talking about. That scene, I would even say that specific speech he's giving literally exists in the movie only because they want to set up the action at the end, Yeah, where 100%. he is, which is a great scene where yeah. he's running through the crowd and everyone keeps switching to the, to an agent. Right? Well, and, and it's another, and so, it's another yada yada moment of, we need to not have the audience being like, are these real people getting killed? Like that yeah. can't be an anxiety. We need, we need to address that. Yeah. Yeah. So they kind of shrug it off, and then it lets you enjoy that action sequence without having horrifying moral implications run through your mind, right? right? Um, but that's but yeah. the. But then that's the thing. I, I think my last point about it. Um, I'm intrigued though, because uh, because part of me wonders what you're talking about. It's addressing these, you know, human things that have existed for all this time, and like I was kind of saying earlier too that, you know, part of this is just the nature of telling a hero's journey kind of movie. I am intrigued, though, to consider that there are movies that that talk about these things without doing the same thing. Not many, because it's hard. But I was I, I did find myself thinking about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Sure, yeah. Because that manages to be a hero's journey, sort of, but then it it actually addresses like some of the problems with a hero's journey, and it, it calls into question the idea of thinking you are the hero, you are the protagonist, the one special person. And it calls into question those anxieties. I'm not saying this movie should have done that. I'm just saying that there was a way. I think there was maybe a world where this movie could have had its cake and eat it too. That's not yeah. impossible. Yep. To be yep. able to tell like a hero's journey thing without catering to the wish fulfillment and to the fantasy side of things and making a story that's easy to co-opt and read into all of these problematic things. That may be asking too much. And again, I'm not holding them responsible for the way it's been co-opted. Um, it's just intriguing to me that I think you can is, is, yeah. is so so interesting. And I think you can you can raise legitimate critiques to some of the stuff of did it effectively um, was it effectively subversive or did it effectively critique the systems that it's trying to critique? You can always talk about the effectiveness of the art at doing what it wants to do um, or what right. we perceive it wants to do. That's very different than holding it accountable for people using it to cause harm, right? Yeah. Um, or to blame it for that, like. Yeah, this movie wasn't effective enough at critiquing capitalism, but that didn't make people go out and become Jordan Belfort, right? People yeah. have been being Jordan yeah. Belfort all of human history. That's absurd. That's a good point. Um, 
So that's kind of what yeah. we're talking about. I do think there are parts of this where it could have critiqued the hero's journey a little bit more, especially that wish fulfillment thing you're talking about. Um, mm. But that's a different criticism than what's been done with the material since it was released. Living in Sweden is a 28-year-old man named Adam Lindgren. He's had stints as a substitute teacher and is currently a speedrunner and streamer on sites like YouTube and Twitch. But what makes Lindgren notable is the competitive scene he retired from just three years ago. At that time, he had been competing in Super Smash Bros. Melee for nearly nine years, going by the handle Armada, and his sheer dominance was something that had not been seen before in that game. That game, Melee, is a 20-year-old fighting game made by Nintendo. Its longevity is owed to a dedicated fan base and a truly ridiculous ceiling to the level of play. The game is technical and difficult and intricate and complex. It's kind of like chess played at 60 frames a second. The execution is so difficult that though clear top players emerge from the field, it's not unusual to see those players upset by a top 50 or top 100 challenger relatively regularly. That is, except in the case of Armada. Back in January 2017, Armada entered one of the year's biggest tournaments called Genesis 4. At that time, he commanded a few truly dizzying statistics in his career. He had an all-time win rate against every player ever. He had, by far, the highest number of first-place finishes per tournaments he'd entered ever. Most staggeringly, he had only lost to five players in tournament ever. His consistency and ridiculous skill floor were unmatched by anyone who had ever played the game. That particular tournament, somewhere in the beginning of Top 64, Armada sat down to play S2J. S2J was also a top player, if just below that highest echelon, but he had never beaten Armada, and frankly, he never really looked close to being Armada. Their sets were almost always swift 3-0s for Armada. But to everyone's surprise, S2J won the first game at Genesis 4, and he won it in convincing fashion. He then destroyed Armada in game two, which sent the crowd roaring. S2J had never, ever beaten Armada, had never looked close, but by game three, he looked on the verge of making history. He looked on the verge of actually taking the set from him. Armada was on his back foot and at serious risk of losing the set without even taking a game. This was history in the making. And then Armada started gaining ground. It wasn't a flashy turnaround. It wasn't a highlight reel, but he held firm. He started answering S2J's aggression. The challenger's momentum palpably eroded. Soon, Armada had clinched game three, and then game four, and then playing so well that it was hard to remember how he had even lost the game, Armada took the set, three games to two. For what it's worth, Armada would go on to win that tournament, but that particular set instantly became legendary, mostly because of S2J fans who kind of lamented how close he came to taking a set off such a legendary player. But for my part, I was always more interested in that set from Armada's point of view. How, I wondered, with a crowd cheering against him, with all that momentum flowing against him, how had Armada managed to pull off that reversal? 
What happened inside for him to be able to execute on that level, even with so many things stacked against him? I would suggest that The Matrix offers us a little bit of insight into what exactly happened during those games. There's a recurring theme in the movie, obvious in some ways, subtle in others, a recurring theme of belief. The characters discuss what they may or may not believe to be true, who they believe in, how willing they are to believe certain things, etc., etc. As a movie with spiritual overtones and a heady acid trip premise, that thematic resonance of believing in things vibrates through every single frame. And in two particular scenes, we find the key to unlocking this central theme of the film that I think directly involves this question of belief. The first iconic scene is when Neo meets the young potential in the Oracle's apartment, the child who instructs him to bend the spoon, not by actually trying to bend it, but by realizing the truth that there is no spoon. While the ultimate meaning and value of this interaction is up for interpretation, to me, it clearly invokes a point of the movie that belief sometimes must precede action as opposed to following action. It is acceptable or even wise in life to hold off on belief or judgment until you have a certain amount of information, until you can be fairly confident in what you perceive to be true. I would be ill-advised, for example, to plan an expensive two-week vacation with a girl before going on a blind date with her. There are too many variables, too many unknowns to take that kind of risk. And as a result, we tend to generate a healthy skepticism to the world around us. It's better to wait and see, to weigh options, to accept the variability and unpredictability of the universe and not try to wrestle control away from it. But this thinking while valuable and practical matters, can sometimes lead you astray as regards personal development, growth, and achievement. Accepting that the spoon is not real, I think, is an illustration of this idea, a reflection of an internal world where we may often severely limit our own abilities by predetermining what we may or may not be capable of. The second moment I want to reference actually draws this into even starker relief. Just before the final act of the film, as the remaining Nebuchadnezzar crew prepares to kill Morpheus in order to secure the safety of Zion, Neo stops them and proposes a suicidal rescue plan. But what he says to stop them is key for our discussion. Just as Morpheus is about to be killed, Neo says, stop. I don't believe this is happening. Note the phrasing, I don't believe this is happening. Once again, the movie is pointing us straight at this idea, straight at the strange ordering of ourselves in the world of, around us. Belief first, then action. Neo begins the momentum of fighting back against his circumstances by expressly refusing to believe that those circumstances have an inevitable hold on him. In fact, Neo's journey in the film might be viewed entirely through this lens of blind belief as a prerequisite to action. Take the famous dojo fight and the way that Morpheus goads Neo. He says, you're faster than this. Don't think you are. Know you are. 
Or take Neo's failure to make the jump, to inhabit the reality that he is able to do such an impossible thing. The belief side of the story culminates when Morpheus tells Neo, who, having accomplished the impossible, is still resistant to the idea that he could be the one, that there is a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Cheesy or not, that line totally encapsulates this theme, this idea that there is value in blindly believing what your place in the world might be, rather than searching for the implied certainty of knowledge. Morpheus is telling Neo not to be the skeptic who wants to wait for certainty, who has to know exactly what his role is, but to accept and embody his place in the world, even without total certainty. Several months after being S2J in 2017, I heard Armada giving an interview when the host asked him how he managed to so often come back from terrible odds, how he fought back in those high-stress, ultra-clutch moments with all of this momentum going against him. Armada's response has always stuck with me. To paraphrase, he said that the first step is is to envision himself winning that set to visualize the moment of victory, the sensation and the emotions of that taking place. And the next step was to work backwards from that vision and consider what had to happen in order for that outcome to take place, how he had to adjust his spacing or punish game, for example. Finally, roadmap in hand, he simply had to execute what he had envisioned. This obviously isn't foolproof. Armada would go on to lose to more players outside of those five, before announcing his retirement in 2018. But in context of this discussion of belief in self, I think it's kind of incredible. Armada exemplifies this idea in a real practical application. Before he can execute what he needs to in order to overcome overwhelming odds, he has to totally inhabit the reality where he can overcome those odds, where that is his future. He has to start, in other words, with the belief, with the internal switch of refusing to accept the apparent reality of his circumstances. It may be apocryphal, but there's a story that the U.S. Marines execute this same thinking in their training process. Supposedly, by the time you believe you're at your physical limit in a particular activity, you have only reached 50% of what you are ultimately capable of. And the U.S. Marines try to get you to be able to accept that you are able to do that remaining 50% of what your body can give up. Apocryphal or not, again, this just illustrates that your potential can be so much more than what you limit yourself to believing you are capable of in the first place. When I consider all of this in the context of my own life, I feel a pang of guilt because this is something I struggle so deeply with. I very easily feel overwhelmed by my circumstances and my situation. I can quite quickly lapse into apathy and resignation, convinced that my potential is not enough to overcome the challenges that face me. I believe this is exactly what is inspiring about movies like The Matrix and sports stories like Armada. They illuminate the possibility that we don't always have to be subject to our internal fears and doubts and anxieties, that we can expand the horizons of what we are capable of and ultimately develop a healthy self-esteem and self-respect. As the young potential tells Neo, it is not the spoon that bends, it is only yourself. And that, again, as cheesy as it may or may not be, is sort of the essence of spirituality. Start with changing yourself. 
and changing the world around you will follow. It occurs to me how much this one can like fit in the framework of yours of like all of that can be in service of something negative. Like yeah. some people, maybe I don't want the, the, them to believe in themselves. I don't want them to expand the horizons of their capability. But Belief here we systems are. systems are amoral and they don't have a inherent goodness or badness because we can do whatever we want with them. Uh, yeah, it's tough stuff. Yeah, I mean, it just is. It's, it's, it's like the fundamental... You know, probably too simplistic, but still there's some grain of truth in it response to like the anti-religion arguments where it's like, well, you know, Stalin, um, you know, yeah. even evolution and, and these concepts of eugenics still came out of the scientific method or a mis a yeah. distortion of it. Right. So let's, let's yeah, pump absolutely, the brakes. Absolutely. Um, but it is, yeah, no, no. I mean, I was just going to dive in. I think it's, yeah, a, go ahead. it's a fascinating, I have so many thoughts. It's just like a fascinating paradox of changing the world where in some ways there is you need to come to a limited conclusion of yourself to actually make an impact beyond yourself and what i mean by that is there's this moment where you have to you know it's like in in recovery you are not in control of people events or circumstances outside of yourself and you need to fundamentally accept that to one stop drinking but two to actually make an impact on your life and that sounds like it's like, oh, cool. So I just shouldn't try. And it's like, well, no, because the, the flip side of that is you recognize that all you can control is yourself, your own actions, your own change. And there becomes this like really neat thing that also happens, which is an awareness that I am part of the world that I want to change. Mm. Right. And it's mm, ultimately yeah. breaking down those delusions that I'm separate from the world and that I'm in control of the world. And somehow in recognizing that I'm part of a greater whole and also powerless over things that are part of that whole outside of myself I actually can control my own behaviors, which have a rippling impact on the world itself because I'm part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's something I think that's that a huge, yeah. Feels so limiting about that, but it's actually so freeing. And it just like focuses us on how we actually make an impact. Like where change, at least the change we can motivate actually takes place. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think there is no spoon is also, so there's another thought I had where there's also just something really interesting about the idea of the the set boxes we put things in, including ourselves, of what we are mm. or are not capable of. And there is like this moment that comes in spirituality where I, I go, there is no Mike, right? How many yeah, of my limited absolutely. beliefs come from a statement I have about who Mike is, this ego that I call myself? And spirituality is fundamentally trying to get me to disassociate with that to some degree, to be like, that's all yeah. part of you but it's not the core of you. It's stuff that you have built on top of the core of you, which is this personality yeah. and these achievements and yada, yada, yada. Ego, right? And there's something very yeah. freeing there where it's like, there is no Mike. Stop thinking of yourself as being boxed in in that way. Everything you have is constructed on part of this pure self, we would say, in a lot of the yeah. Christian tradition of mysticism or the true self, right? And there's something cool about that too. So anyways, I don't know. I'm gonna kick it back to you. But those are the two immediate big thoughts that came to my mind. Well, I think those are great. I like, you know, it's funny because I wrote down as you were talking, what what we're talking about is surrender, right? Yeah. Is mm. is being able to release your, your, and it, what's so funny is, is, you know, I, I was painting this in the context of actually being able to do more and influence the world more. 
but the first step is releasing your 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 illusion of your control over those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's almost about getting to like, there's a two sided, you know, so, so Mike and I um, are both fans, great fans of Richard Rohr. And actually Mike, I don't know if it was, was it Rohr who did the, the hula hoop thing or is that just a generic thing that's existed? No, Basically, no that, that, the metaphor, that was a, my sponsor thing, but I don't know if that's a oh, generic, okay. if that's a generic, I don't know how generic thing is, or not. but the, basically the idea of like, you know, the, the, the quote I was given to me by Mike was, you know, put a hula hoop on the ground and stand inside of it. And you have now encapsulated everything that you can control in the world. Right. Mm. Ultimately. Mm. And what's funny about that though, is there's a double edged side to it because on the one hand, it's about surrendering your control over essentially everything. But on the other hand, there's a side of it of like recognizing where you do have influence and where you can do things. And again, I think about, I think about sports once again, right? Because, you know, that story with Armada, notice that his ability, like him coming back in a bat in that sort of situation where it's so difficult, it's not like a brute force thing. It's not like, I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to try, I'm going to, you know, grip harder. I'm going to, because that's the classic thing also coming up in, in um, uh, recovery stuff is like, well, if I'm going to hold tighter, all these things are going to slip away. Like there's a release to it. There's a, I recognize I can only control myself. And I'm going to believe I'm capable of doing this and mm. that I have the ability to win this. But yeah. I'm also letting go of trying to get there by just like, you know, get buckling down and getting angrier and getting more. And like my emotions take over control of me more. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to release. And I'm going to try to only play my game. That's the other thing that comes up in sports a lot is like, you know, when you're in that tough position, you have to find a way to get back to playing your own game, which is another way of saying, I'm not going to, I'm not responding to you anymore. I'm not letting you dictate my opponent, dictate how I feel about my situation. Mm. I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep doing control. I'm going to keep control over myself and I'm going to keep working to, to do myself as good as I can, because that's the only, that's always the shortest path to success is how do I make sure I'm doing the best I can. And also it means that when you fail, because you will fail sometimes, you're not always going to be the best. When you fail, it's like, okay, I was focused on the process anyways. I wasn't, yeah. you know, I, I was already had it in my head of what I controlled and what I couldn't. And so that's okay. Because all you can ever do is your best. So, yeah. So I just think it's so cool in that. I have one more thought, which is, Mike, you were talking about at the beginning of your thing, um, the idea of spirituality as being about changing ourselves rather than changing the world. Um, this may or may not be a tangent, but I'm always fascinated about this in context of prayer too, especially in the mm, Christian, yeah, in, in yeah, the Christian yeah. world. Um, cause, and Mike knows like, this is one of the classic John divine rants, which we won't get too deep into it. I'm sure I've given it before on this podcast, but, but basically I just think this is one of the things people get most wrong about prayer that, you know, there's this sense if you, in most Christian circles, excuse me, or at least in most evangelical circles of, you know, I pray so that I can change the world. I pray because I, or I pray because I want God to change the world, which is another way of saying I want to do it because I'm trying yeah. to like, God, you should be doing this over there. And I just think that's so backwards and it's, yeah. it's so silly when you read, when you read scripture itself that, you know, the, the overwhelming message is like, well, no, prayer is about changing yourself, about changing your own attitude towards the, towards the world and about realigning how I view things around me and how I view my ability to, to exist with those things. Um, I think that's the power of it. And that's where it's so exciting 
I think that the idea, because frankly, let's just be real, prayer as something to actually influence the world is just, is at best just ineffectual. Um, and at worst, I think is, is actively severely damaging because mm-hmm. frankly, there's just no good answer to the question of if that's true, how come um, some prayers for good things work and some prayers for good things don't work, right? Yeah. Because it's just, there's no answer to, well, the three-year-old who prayed to God every single night that he wouldn't take away her dad for cancer from cancer, and then he dies. And it's like, well, cool. What are you going to do? And, no, and I don't want to start like the whole, if you're listening, it's like, yeah, I know. I know all the terrible counter arguments. I've heard them. I probably made them myself at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you, there's no good answer to that, really. All those yeah. arguments are pretty bad. And I think the best one is what we're talking about. It's like, yeah, the answer is that prayer doesn't work that way. You don't pray yeah. because you want things to change. You you pray like in that context so that you can be grateful if they do change and you can accept that. And that can be, you know, you can have a better relationship with the world and be more present with the world. I said I wasn't going to rant and then I ranted. So I'm sorry. No. But, I think like, that's do, spot on. do you have any thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, I guess I would just close with my favorite. And that is the way it's been put to me because I'm, I'm sorry. Ditto, 100%. I always hone in on, on the effectiveness of it, which is like, you can't know if prayer does something outside of yourself, but I can tell you that believing it does makes it less likely that you're going to be the solution to the problem you see in the world, right? That yeah, you, It absolutely. makes it less likely that you'll be transformed to try to be a salve to brokenness or woundedness that you see. And an example of that is, you know, this is how it was put to me, so it's not original, but this essentially... Do we pray for Uncle Bob or the 10-year-old to not have cancer? Or do we pray for the 10-year-old with cancer so that when we enter the room with them, we are a source of comfort and light and love that eases their suffering? And is, I mean, from my Christian perspective, is an example of Jesus to them in their suffering. And which one is more effective at bringing the kingdom of God from my Christian perspective, or at least a better world? I think it's pretty obviously the one that changes me. So that's my only immediate thought. And that's the most obvious example for, in my mind of what we're talking about. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, next episode, we're going to be doing Drive, uh, the 2011 uh, action drama movie sorry Ryan Gosling mm. real hero and a real human being Ooh, yes. good, to- good times good times who, who didn't uh, go through a phase of listening to that song on repeat <laughs> I mean ever, everyone it was it's wearing our scorpion jackets and driving cars that's dope man I, what a time so to be alive want a scorpion you, you forgot you made me remember my seven year quest to get a scorpion jacket I don't think I could even pull it off I'm not right no 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 it's, a, I, it's I an want absurd it, outfit which is the it's best ridiculous, part about but it but I want it yeah uh, cool well the last thing we do on this show we each have a final question prepared for the other person um, I'll go first again just because I'm always scared of Mike so I just mm. you know want to put off put off that hellscape for a little bit longer Mike uh, if you could choose one program to download into your brain mm. vis-a-vis I know Kung Fu, oh. what do you pick and why? Only one, though. Only one oh. you can do. 
I mean, knowing Kung Fu would be pretty sweet. Um, no, but you say that, is that actually applicable in your life in any context whatsoever? No, I mean, I think the, the, the real answer, I mean, if I'm like being a good human being, I'd be like, how to be a dad. Uh, but nah, there, nah, there's fam. No, there's, no, there's no tape on that. Nah, nah fam. I, wanna, I want basketball. I want basketball skills. <laughs> Make me a pickup artist. Like, I want to be the pickup basketball king of Tallahassee. <laughs> Which, I mean, notice you can't change your physical attributes. So no. it's not like you're suddenly 6'7 and like, yeah. you know. But you, you just want the, you just want the mood. You just want I want to be knowledge. a short white guy who just destroys pickup Who's just destroying everyone. Around town what? in some southern capital. <laughs> suddenly, I feel like the board. Well, I was actually going to say a fighting game. So that's that's maybe just the same thing. Same thing. Uh, yeah. Like me- melee skills would be great. I feel like the boring answer would be a language or like a lot of languages. Yeah, whatever. Don't care. Like, you know, that'd be, that'd be, I mean, wouldn't it be cool though? Actually, America. Music, music or language would be, okay. Xenophobia. Like, like, I already know, I already know American. What other language do I need? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, oh. Cool, what do you got? So, John, you are in a sordid love affair with Baron Harkonnen. <laughs> no, what, what, what is this? <laughs> what, what are you doing to me? So, John, you go to the Spank Castle of Monty Python. So it's, Castle it's, stop it. Anyway, it's not even um, in this movie. <laughs> but it could be. I'm so mad. Um, you've been freed from the Matrix for nine years, living in a hellhole of a ship, eating goop, being cold all the time, but not in an enjoyable way, and hanging Good out. <laughs> going back to us making fun of Mouse. I wrote, after all that, hanging out with Mouse. So I guess... I also didn't like him in this movie. <laughs> that was anyway. the, wait, 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 wait. So that's the nadir of the experience. <laughs> that's like, right. That's like the last if thing you I were, said. if you're talking, if the agent asks you like, why are you betraying them? Yeah. You go through everything, and then you're like, and there's this stupid guy on guy. my ship, and he keeps creating <laughs> sex experiences with women in red dresses. Anyway, so all of that's a given. What from your old life would you miss so much that you'd agree to go back in the Matrix and doom humanity? Ooh, that's a good question. But like, but like, miss so much that I would betray humanity, or just yeah. that I would want to be like, because I mean, if I'm being real honest, I don't think there's anything like that's a tough, that's a big, that's a big card he punched there. Super Smash. That's like that's <laughs> uh, melee is pretty great. There's no reason why he couldn't do that. You know why I never figured out is if they have all this technology, why aren't they just playing essentially video games all the time? I don't know. Like they're not doing anything on the stupid ship. Apparently, I can't see them doing anything. It's like just well. Just apparently, like, they're having sex dreams with women in red dresses. That's true. That's true. So there, there is that. I guess cool. Um, I think it would be food. Is food's tough? Food's yeah, pretty up there. That's steak, man. Mm. I mean, here's the thing. I would want. I want to say any number of other things. I want to say like, um, like people watching, just having other people around, stuff like that. But my sister called me out recently where she's like, John, I think everyone has their thing they need in a place where they live. And it for you, it must be food because all you've talked about since moving to New York is how many restaurants <laughs> there are. And I'm like, Damn. I don't know if I realize that about myself, but I think war- she may or may not be you, right. Have you been attacked? <laughs> I might have been attacked a little bit. And, and what she also pointed out, she's like, and that's also all you complained about in the last place you li- I lived in one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I just complained incessantly that there was only two restaurants and neither of them were very good. There was a crappy pizza place and a crappy Mexican place. And that was it. Yikes. And so, but like that for a year was enough for me to be like, I got to move somewhere else. This is a bad look for you for sure. 
So yeah, I do kind of feel like I'd be I'd be eating the steak in the restaurant and just be like, man, you know, you know what? See I mean, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's just worth humanity. Uh, and by the way, humanity's not dying. They're fine. We're all gonna be we're all gonna be living in the matrix. We'll be okay. Yeah, they're fine. So no worries. Uh, so yeah, that'd be what, what? 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 What about you? What do you got? Um, I think dogs. Honestly, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that'd be I a think bummer. there might be dogs in Zion. Yeah, I don't whatever. remember okay. enough about the sequels. I don't think I want to meet the dog that lives in Zion. That sounds you, you, awful. Your response should have been, we're just not acknowledging the sequels at all. Weird, weird cave dog living at the core of the earth is not a replacement for cute dogs. You say that, you say that, but once that dog had a little bit of personality, you'd be totally in. I used to I think like I needed pugs. I'm just saying. And then I lived a- with a pug for a little bit and I was like, okay, I'm in. Okay, I'm pugs like, rule. But anyway, actually, you know what? Pugs are probably all that exist in Zion, so that checks out. Inbred, have snorting, <laughs> disgusting animals. Messed up animals. But they have, but they're kind of cute. They but have a personality, cute, and you're like, oh. Still a oh. dog. But don't, don't, don't breed pugs. Don't buy pugs that are bred. Don't, you know, just PSA. Don't take part in that. But also, they're, also they're cute. So, I mean, you know, if there one exists, I guess, don't let it die. <laughs> like, be friends with it. But neuter it or something. John, I don't know. stop. Stop. You're going you're going into the spiral. It's going a little bit. <laughs> I've got to dig myself a hole. Uh good times. Okay, well Mike, thank you as always. Any other any final any final thoughts for the Matrix? There we go. So calm down. We got re- copyright strict struck. You sound exactly like, sound sound exactly like, like <sighs> What a Zach good moment. My name is Jonathan Jonathan Devine, joined as always by Mike Overstreet. We will see you guys on the next episode. Take care. Goodbye. Well, Mike, uh, I don't remember how this show. (laughs) I'm tired. I don't know what it is. Okay, here we go.